Hey, everybody. Welcome to Squatch Talk. I'm Pat. And tonight, as you guys know, because you've seen this advertised, I'm sure, we have uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum with us, which uh, pretty much everybody knows in the Bigfoot world. Uh, he's a professor at Idaho State University of uh, Anatomy and Anthropology, a world-class expert in foot morphology in the evolution of primates. So welcome to the show, Dr. Meldrum. Glad to have you here. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, let's, let's just jump right into it. Um, one of the, sorry about that truck out there. Um, one of the reasons, uh, just one of the reasons that I, I, I wanted to have a conversation with you and, and, talk about some things is is because of this because of your appearance on modern day debate channel on youtube a few months ago roughly mm -hmm. um and that fascinated me i mean i mean here we have this debate channel you know they they talk about you know politics and religion creationism and even flat earth stuff you know, so that's some kind of way out there stuff, but it's kind of entertaining to watch flat earth debates actually. Um, and here comes this Bigfoot debate. Okay. And, and of course, what better person, you know, than our, you know, the, I'd say the Bigfoot community sort of a, you know, prized academic, real scientist, you know, Dr. Meldrum. And so that really fascinated me that you did that. And, and, and just real quick, I'm curious, like, how did that come about? Uh, I would imagine that, uh, did James reach out to you to do yes. that? Oh yeah. Yeah, he did. And I mean, it was, it was couched. Uh, I, I sort of uh, looked forward to it as just an opportunity for a conversation. I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, debating is not really, uh, a, uh, a method of scientific exploration per se, right. but although we, you know, we critically evaluate, uh, uh evidence and so that that was the approach i took and he described the um the other participant and uh oh shucks what it was maddie maddie yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, science science side up and yep. uh, and so that sounded great you know she was a phd student she mm -hmm. she uh clearly was uh, uh thoughtful and and uh this was not her first her first, uh, you know, hayride on the topic of uh, uh, biologically related subject matter, and so, right. uh, so it was fun. It was uh, it was interesting. Uh, there there were a few moments that were a little frustrating. I think I think she almost felt compelled to to adopt a skeptical point of view, and, and just to play devil's advocate for the sake of a debate. Right. And so and so sometimes you know the conversation. Uh, got a little, uh, uh, a little strained. I guess would be the best, the best way to say it. But other than that, I thought it was it was fun. It was uh, interesting, and it's always good to, uh, you know, that that's part of the process of peer review is to expose your thinking to a fresh perspective, and uh, whether it's uh, by by means of clarification or by reevaluation of your thought process and your your justification of the conclusions that you've drawn and so it's it's always a, a healthy exercise and you know 
Mm. To, uh, I mean, I developed, I don't never, you don't take these kinds of things personally uh, ever um, unless there are ad hominem attacks. But, but that's, that's one of the things that uh, you're trained at a very early stage in your uh, career as, as a budding scientist, as a student and budding scientist is to, is to somewhat detach yourself from your hypothesis so that criticism of the hypothesis isn't taken as a personal attack. And uh, I mean, sometimes people behave in such a way that, that it merits <laughs> yeah. the, uh, criticism of, of them themselves rather than just their, their thinking. But yeah, well, we're, 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 we are people. That's right. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Right. Uh, but, but you can be trained to, to be uh, more objective uh, right. or, you know, and things like that. Um, and critical thinking is a part of that training. But sure. yeah, I, I, I would say mission accomplished that you, yeah. you said you, you were, you, you had the idea of going into it to have more of a conversation right. and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And that's what fascinated me, to be honest with you. Here you are on a debate channel. And, of course, Maddie, you know, Maddie was, she, she's a good, you know, you can tell she's a, she's a good scientist. She's a, a good-hearted person. Like, she, you know, so she wasn't coming there to be adversarial. Like, well, right, right. You know. That shouldn't be the goal either. I right. It should. It's the, it's sometimes, you know, when you're engaging yeah. uh, skeptics with a capital S, yeah, logical skeptics who, who doubt everything from the outset that it becomes sometimes an adversarial not always but yeah. sometimes there and, you know there, there are some individuals who are i think well known to the community yeah and <laughs> i and i i mean i think i think those people truly close-minded well yeah and, no i know yeah. so. their starting point is uh i mean it's like I've often used this example and maybe uh, uh, ad nauseum, but uh, the colleague who, not to my face, but, but in response to my request for justification for the rejection of a paper that had been solicited by the editor, but had been squashed by her, by his rather, uh, advisory panel. Mm -hmm. and I asked for justification that it came back and he said, well, the, the, the spokesperson, the person that was the most outspoken, said they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence you think he thinks he has. You know, and so when you when you when that's your starting point, you've already made up your mind, you have these preconceptions, and I don't want to be bothered with evidence. Yeah. Uh, where does that go? I mean that there's that's because not scientific. It goes, it goes nowhere, uh, Dr. Meldrum. And, and again, I'll say this, that to me, that's being truly closed-minded. Right. Whereas an open-minded person is not, sometimes people mistake that as like, they'll believe anything, like they're gullible. Sure. It's like, it's no, it's a, being open-minded is a willingness to consider new ideas. Right. It's that, it's pretty much that simple. Sure. So, so, you know, I mean, that's kind of how science works. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so I found it, um, that debate just had, it had a very special impact on me. It, it like, it really touched me and it kind of made a light bulb go off on my head. And I was, and, and I really truly thought to myself, you know, I want to do that. I want to have an outreach. Like 
I think it's important to go to scientific professionals in any capacity that I can. And, mm-hmm. and it's just me. I'm just, you know, Pat Turner. And uh, but I could do it. And sure enough, I reached out and and I got to have that same conversation on a different debate channel with uh, Erica, who is a primatologist and anthropologist, huh? who was the uh, co-moderator on that debate that you were on oh. on Modern Day Debate Channel. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I got I got to do the same thing. So it inspired me to do the exact same thing, um, and uh, and it went great in a, in a different way because I'm not uh, I'm not an academic. You know, I'm not a scientist, uh, um, but uh, but it really did. It inspired me. So I think that that's an important thing. And you were telling me just before we went on air that now you're you're doing things outside of the Bigfoot world with even like younger people, younger generation, even kids. Oh, yeah. Where you're at different places talking about the Bigfoot phenomena. All right. There's there's such a huge interest and it's it's such a great hook for uh for students young young and old um and so yeah and this is it, it seems to have picked up pace during the pandemic as people have become much more familiar with the potential of zoom and other platforms to uh, hold these virtual meetings and so but 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 for quite some time i've been uh you know invited to uh to grade school classrooms and uh which is always fun because I can take a lot of hands-on uh, models of, of uh, s- uh, bones and skulls and footprints and mm-hmm. skeletons and so on, and uh, um, and uh, but right on up to university settings, uh, campus-wide or particular uh, classroom presentation, be it in really? anthropology or philosophy. Critical thinking is always a real hot topic. Persuasive speeches you don't know how many times i get tapped by college students for a brief interview as part of their uh, uh persuasive argument project for a speech class and so it's it's always fun it's uh it's fun to uh you know to uh, uh promote the the curiosity as well yeah. as the critical thinking but I- I, I see. I find that fascinating, and again, it just like I just told you uh, before we just before we went on air that like I had no idea. I had no idea you were doing that. You know, like you've been you've been kind of busy in the Bigfoot world lately. You know, yeah. yeah so yeah. Uh, so if you're doing that, so you're going outside the Bigfoot world in all these different kind of like places and different diverse you know capacities. And you're and you're actually talking about Bigfoot in the way that you do. That's exactly that. I mean, that's just exactly what I'm talking about when I say, you know, I was inspired by your modern day debate and it made me want to reach out into the scientific community and show them mm-hmm. that there's an element to this phenomena and the people that follow it and maybe swim in those waters that is, isn't what you think. We yeah. have we have critical thinkers. We have skeptics. Sure. You know, we have objectivity. You know, we have all those tools. But yet here we are scratching our heads about the phenomena. And but we're not, you know, academics like yourself. Um, so this the this group exists. This kind of element to the Bigfoot world exists, where 
you know, I know you know this is that, you know, you might be get a colleague interested and they just kind of blow it off like, well, I mean, I've seen those guys on TV. They they don't seem well educated. <laughs> right. Well, it, it uh, um, yeah, that can be a challenge. I mean, I, I uh, uh, the the quote Bigfoot community is such a diverse Very. cross section of humanity and there's mm-hmm. there's all types uh, and, and many bring very um, uh, laudable skills, uh, admirable skills and talents to bear, uh, whether it's wildlife photography or, or um, uh, bioacoustics or, you know, all sorts of things, tracking skills. Trackers, yeah. And, um, you know, it's a, a, a case in point. I mean, I've, I've always kind of advocated this this notion of citizen science and and, uh, you know, the motivation behind writing the field guide was uh, to create a kind of how-to uh, opportunity. And, uh, but, but something I just did uh, uh, recently, I, I'm, I'm frequently um, the recipient of uh, uh, photos of footprints or uh, casts or handprints in, uh, you know, the handprints on car windows that had been highlighted by the dust that adheres to the oils from the hand. And uh, a lot of them uh, don't yield uh, um, likely or or, uh, um, informative uh, data about Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I always take the time to kind of walk the person through the process of evaluation. I try to generate some little um, uh, diagrams to show uh, the interpretation of a footprint or a fingerprint and so forth. And, you know, and, and, and just the other day, I, you know, I realized, well, this, I missed, I've missed an opportunity to um, uh, share that exercise with a, a wider audience than just this one-on-one dialogue. And so, um, you know, anonymously without giving anyone's name or location or whatnot, I just recently posted on my Facebook page some of those interpretations a couple of them. and i'll have to go back through and cull some from my email inbox but to share them with a broader audience and and uh um, hopefully you know um uh, uh instill some some skills or some critical interpretation uh abilities in in uh, in those folks out there who uh, then can be citizen scientists and mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's just, there's a lot, it's, it's so easy to overinterpret or misinterpret outright um, the, uh, the evidence that uh, one finds out there in the field. And, and uh, it comes with some experience. And, and so the more examples, I think, that are presented and, and uh, afforded the opportunity to bounce around and comment upon, the, the better off we'll, we'll all be as a, as a community. So I, I think it'll be kind of fun and interesting to share those things with a, a, a wider viewership. I, I agree. And uh, believe it or not, I mean, there's, you know, there are people in the Bigfoot world that think, think and promote just, just like you said, you know, don't misinterpret a bear double step, you know, yeah. uh, not everything you see in the woods is Bigfoot. There are people that go on the woods. There's a whole community of people that go on the woods and build primitive structures, you know, um, <laughs> Not every hair 
right. pile of dung you see. Um, but it is, uh, it's, you're in kind of a, you're in a very unique position because you're, you kind of, you're a beacon of sorts as far as like, you're the first person people think of whenever they find something they think is interesting and they immediately want to tug on your shirt about it. And as a good example, is it true that you actually do receive poop in, in the through the mail? Not recently, but in, <laughs> in, in the past, cause I've, cause I've had enough opportunities like this to kind of discourage people from, from uh, indiscriminately shipping that kind of material through the postal services. But, but there was a time, yes, when, when uh, it, it happened more frequently than, than uh, uh, desirable <laughs> under conditions that were not, you know, that's not something to ship in the, in the heat of August when, uh, when it may sit in the mailroom down on main campus for a couple of days before it's brought up here to our, uh, yeah. <laughs> our office. And, uh, so yeah, no, I, I I do get a lot of of that, and and I, by no means do I want to discourage. You know, you, you say a, a beacon or a lightning rod. It's it's um, I think it's just because I I have become the uh, the the face, the academic face of this subject. Um, uh, there there are others, and uh, we've lost a few, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. But. Uh, but you know, I would also encourage, and not and again, not to discourage people from sharing with me. You can CC me, but I would encourage you to search out your local authorities, uh, be it you know park service or, and I know some people are because some have shared their interactions, and I've I've actually been referred to and had to have had the opportunity to have conversations with some of these local park rangers or uh, university professors in anthropology or biology uh, or zoo people um, you know but 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 if you can there are more people out there academics and otherwise that uh, that have an interest that harbor an interest even if it's a if it's a closet interest because um, you know in many situations as as, as I've discussed uh, quite openly in public you know you you're <laughs> you're going to get tarred and feathered in some situations. And that's, and that's unfortunate, of yeah. course. Um, thank, thank God you have tenure. Um, <laughs> that's all I have to say. Well, um, see, I was that, as I've said, I was naive or idealistic enough that I, I didn't think that should be the, the basis for making a decision whether to pursue something intellectually or not. I, I agree. As a result, I got beat up pretty, pretty soundly. Uh, well, I, no, I should, that's maybe overstating it, but I took a lot of flack. I'm sure you have. Yeah. I'm sure you have. And, um, I, I, I get that, you know, even though I don't, you know, I don't, uh, hang out in the scientific community a whole lot. I, I just into like intellectually instinctively, I'll say, get that. Uh, Cause again, people are people, man. Um, but, uh, just to finish that thought, the thing that yeah. I wanted to, mm -hmm. to emphasize though, that. It is if investigators out there, enthusiasts, will cultivate those local connections, I think, one, they'll be pleasantly surprised because there is a lot of interest. And two, it gives these folks, these other folks that are kind of in the closet, an opportunity to engage and interact with the evidence and with people who are interested, you know, and sincere, genuine about their 
their efforts to look for evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it just ups the game a bit, you know, when you have more participation by, by these folks. And I think, you know, I really think we're on the cusp. I've talked about this, that uh, citing, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Kuhn, who's his book, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He was the fellow who, who coined the term paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I've talked about how we've been experiencing a paradigm shift when it comes to the, the theoretical context for uh, considering even the question of the existence of relic hominoids. I agree. And um, I, I would reference immediately um, my debate, you know, with Erica, which, again, was not a debate. It was uh-huh. it was a curious conversation, even though she I mean she challenged me on some things. Yes. And it would be interesting to actually bring up up a, a couple of those challenges because she kept trying to like drag me into the well, how do they evolve to this, you know? Oh, and I'm nice. like I'm like, I don't know, that's that's above my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> like But those are straightforward questions. I mean, those are questions with straightforward answers. I mean, as far as theoretical, we we certainly can't talk conclusively about those right questions, but right yeah uh, yeah and and i mean the biggest point she made i conceded the point you know is that uh well primates evolved through you know as savannah dwellers and and they were they're bipedal savannah dwellers so how could they do so well in all this terrain all of a sudden well <laughs> uh, there's some I, I i was like i don't there's, know there's some old school thinking there first of yeah, all but she's she's a young well, yeah, I know. The sources. No, yeah. that that the, the, the idea that humans evolved bipedalism to forge out into the open savanna and brave the, you know, brave the the lions and, and hyenas and leopards. Oh my, that's an old, just so narrative. Uh, all the evidence points to bipedalism having evolved in woodland habitats and upright posture was probably predisposed from vertical postures in the canopy, climbing up tree trunks, hanging under tree trunks, reaching overhead to, to, uh, you know, to harvest resources. I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, there's all, all sorts of, uh, contextual yeah. uh, aspects of, of that, that. And, and time problematic and time. Like, oh, so, sure. yeah, yeah I, I've come to, re- I like, since then, you know, she kind of caught me off guard because I'm like, again, I'm not an academic, you know, but sure. <laughs> I mean, I know some things I can talk about Giganto, but um, like over, I'm like, well, we were talking to like over the past 4 million years, like there's time for evolution in that, right? So well, sure. And evolution, yeah. can, it can, it can occur very rapidly. I mean, we're, we have uh we have, you know, our, our fossil record, especially of hominins, has long periods of stasis where there was very little change. And when the change occurred, a lot of it occurred fairly rapidly uh, as, uh, you know, whether it was through uh, dramatic environmental changes or, or uh, right. bottlenecks in population genetics and, and so forth. So, so, yeah, there's, you know, and this is, this is one of the, one of my criticisms of those who adopt a quote skeptical posture is that they get bogged and I'm not, not uh, labeling Erica as such, but 
it just sort of points. Well, no, she's she's quite curious, actually. Sure, yeah. Yep. But you get bogged down in these hypotheticals that we don't have good parameters really right. established yeah. Yeah. to the to the exclusion of it and ignoring all of the evidence that exists. You know, I've, I've had this art. I I spoke, you know, we were talking about speaking in different venues. I was invited to speak to an anthropology class at the University of Wyoming. And uh, it also included a campus-wide presentation. And uh, uh, afterward, we had dinner with uh, some members of the department, including some couple of grad students. And, uh, and, and it was interesting because a couple of grad students, you know, they were flexing their intellectual muscles and <laughs> trying to take me on and and so forth and uh, but the uh, the department chairman uh, was, he he kind of came at me he'd asked the question during the Q and A anyway but I and I had I guess I turned to him and I said so was my my answer I said I wasn't sure if my answer was satisfying you know the expression your body language suggests that it wasn't he says no it wasn't. And, he, and then he went off on this thing he about the absence. He was he was focused on the absence of, uh, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I, yeah. And uh, and I said, well, you know, after I addressed it and, and and offered an answer, it was one of those things where you can't offer a entirely substantive answer. You have to answer kind of hypothetically or actually apologetically, you know, but but from a rational uh, uh, framework. And then I said, you know, though, you, you skeptics, you, 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 you that adopt a skeptical posture, you have your favorite missing piece of evidence and you pound and pick and niggle away at that to the exclusion of everything else. And he goes, oh, what are you referring to? What, what other evidence do you have? And I said, well, didn't you, weren't you sitting there in my presentation? You know, I mean, I went through a whole list of things and, and uh, you know, so on. And I said, but probably at the top of that list for me, because of uh, of, uh, of my background, it's uh, the footprint, the the composite summation of the footprint evidence that's accumulated over the past half century. And he goes, oh, well, I'm not an expert in footprints. <laughs> and I just well, kind of, well, well I am. <laughs> so, so why don't you give a little deference just as, you know, I would give deference to your ideas about forensic archaeology. Uh, why don't you give me a little professional deference for, for my uh, uh, time and tenure as an expert in foot morphology? And, and so it, it, uh, I, I, the tenure or the, uh, the tone of the conversation shifted a little bit after that because uh, well, the point was made. But it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's just funny. You know? Well, well, that's, that's a, a little, little, little on on oh. from yourself or from me. I think it's my voice coming through your computer. Oh, is that what? Yeah. Well, I've got my speakers back behind that usually we don't have a, a problem. Okay, sure? I just took my earbuds out. Okay, they started no. off great, but then there was a little period that. So I I don't hear it anymore. So I'll just go like this for a minute. Um, uh, where were we at that guy? Uh, so so you were able to end up having a better conversation with him after oh, that yeah. sort of a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there wasn't so much of the of the jousting. I mean, this uh, 
you know, the graduate student, uh, he, he tried several times to uh, cite this work or that work. And, and uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it, his 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 understanding of the of the things he was citing was was um, uh, undeveloped. Let's put it that way. You know, he didn't have the depth of experience to place those things in context. And so I very politely kind of you know pointed out, well, you know, just because you see it in print doesn't mean it's true. I mean, that's the thing. It's I often point to these studies. I mean, they're specifically targeting biomedical research. Because that's the purpose of, of the of the there, there's been a series of studies where they take the literature in the biomedical field and they kind of go back for the past 20 years and how many of those papers were on the mark or how many of them or were refuted through subsequent research and and the percentage is just uncanny I mean it's more well more than half of the papers you might as well just you know put a match to them. They're worthless. I mean, they're not worthless from a historical perspective, but the conclusions essentially are invalidated by subsequent, uh, more extensive testing and research. So, so the point being that just because you see something, first things are very time sensitive, but just because you see it in print doesn't make it true, Virginia. <laughs> to make I, an illusion I, there, <laughs> some won't recognize that, but. Yes, Virginia, there is a Bigfoot. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, and the, you know, scientific journal process is, is vigorous. And you're right. I mean, it's there for a reason. Sure. Um, sure. And, you know, some things get latched onto and vetted better and it becomes promising. Right. Some things get thrown out after a year. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why it's there. Right. Peer, peer review is not perfect. You know, it's right. not. It's a. But it's but it's a it's a living you know the scientific literature is kind of a living breathing organism in a way, and so it has its foibles and it has its uh, ups and downs. You know, it isn't a perfectly homeostatic environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's uh, adjustments, and so uh, I agree, and I think that's a misconception on the sort of general public's part. People, sure. you know, people that aren't have no knowledge of that. Yeah, you know. Um, they, you know, science isn't formed on consensus. They don't, they're, right. we don't take a vote and go, ah, 51% says yeah. the earth is round. Therefore yeah. the earth is round. You know, the, the, the consistent con consensus doesn't create reality. So. Right. And especially when you're, the consensus is, is a consensus of opinion, you know, uh, and, but you know, we, if, if the, if the uh, overwhelming uh, message or, or uh, central theme of, of evidence continues to to uh, reiterate a certain concept, you know, then then the consensus of data, you know, when we talk about data, then you can maybe uh, employ that uh, that phrase. But yeah, it's you know, it's not cut and dry. Everything's not black and white. It's a process. Science remains tentative in the face of, of ongoing discovery. So I, I don't want to I don't want to leave your audience with the notion that I'm that I'm cynical about science. I mean, right. uh, there, there's a certain always a certain level for, for someone who's who's reached, uh, you know, has got as, as much gray hair as I do and put in the time. 
there's a certain level of, of pragmatism, I guess, maybe put it that way. I haven't quite slipped over into, into total cynicism, but there's a pragmatism that recognizes the process and that it is not a perfect process. And so but yeah. you have to work within the system because that way there is at least some regimentation, some, some uh, you know, there, there are uh, rails <laughs> yeah, that can kind right. of keep, keep things uh, moving. But sometimes it can be too confining. That's the thing. And, and you know. Balance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's such a history of discoveries where things have gone off the rails. And, and oh, wow, look what's over here that we weren't even contemplating, you know. And so you have to always remember that's why history is so important. That's why it's so discouraging to see such a poor grasp of, of general history, uh, let alone scientific history amongst, yeah. amongst the populace, even amongst uh, students. I mean, the, 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 the volume of information that students are expected to get a handle on. You know, I, I, <laughs> I teach human anatomy and physiology, introductory textbook. Look at the thickness of the text. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, there's you know you wouldn't think so with uh, something like anatomy and physiology that there would be that much um, difference and, and anatomy not much, so much more. Although our understanding of the finer details of structure and and uh, organization from molecular to uh, systems is is uh, refining. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but with that level of expectation, corners get cut. And unfortunately, one of the corners that almost always gets cut, I mean, when I took classes, it was very common to spend the first week of, of, a, of a scientific topic looking at the history of that discipline and mm -hmm. some of the landmark studies and discoveries that have defined the the scope and the objectives and the paradigms of that particular discipline and unfortunately that's rarely the case anymore and uh, unfortunately I, I, and it's sad because i think students uh, benefit tremendously uh from the inclusion of that kind of conversation that sort of perspective yeah and i i think a great example of what you just said is um and I've, of course i've heard you say this several times and and we we could touch on it. Is that um, it, I I forget his name. Uh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh, but it, it, when when it came to the uh, uh, the uh, you know, well, it looks it looks like an ape patty. Looks oh, like yes. an ape from the waist up. Yeah, but it looks like a human from the waist down. If only been a few more years before until we discovered Lucy, right? How and, and who who am I talking about? I forget the name. Doctor John Napier. Napier, yes. Napier. Um, yeah, that's that's such a that's such a dramatic example. I mean, it's yeah. just it's, like I said, it's one of my favorites because it's it's so ironic in a way that uh, that that was the one linchpin for him in his evaluation of the P, the PG film. And yet uh, that <laughs> has become, has become sort of the generic description of Australopithecines now, you know, yeah. half and half this mosaicism, which is such a, uh, so prevalent. 
it's it's like you know hominins now it's kind of like a, a game of yahtzee let's see how many combinations you can get with by rolling those dice you know and one dice for the feet one dice for the for the knees one dice for the hips you know and so on and uh yeah. unexpected combinations of uh have, uh, in this homo nilati is uh, is another fascinating example of of a, a strange mosaicism in, in a species that has now uh, been recognized to have persisted alongside uh, other hominins, including us, for uh, for quite a, a length of time, much till much more recently than would have been imagined when the fossils were first discovered, because of some of the primitive aspects of the skeleton. And so, you know, there's just um, uh, it's like I say, you know, you, you, uh, with 2020 hindsight now that comes with the maturation of a, of a discipline and with the age aging, uh, of the maturation of the investigators, you can look back and you can see how so many things about Sasquatch that were being described back in the fifties and sixties and seventies actually anticipated what we now understand about hominin evolution. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have uh, just uh, intuitively included some of those descriptions. They, they seemed counter, counterintuitive. And yep. if you were informed about the paradigms of anthropology at that time, you would have all the more avoided those things because they cut right against the grain of, of what was consensus, what was accepted as the general uh, notion of how yeah. evolution, human evolution had pro proceeded. And so yeah. and that's you, fascinating to me. I mean, you always make that point very well because you would know, um, you know, and you do make that point well about when, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film came out back in that time. So right. say, the, you know, shortly after it was filmed, you know, for several years even, all the professionals basically looked at it, uh, it only from one angle. Well, it can exist because of their understanding at the time right. of, of hominid evol evolution, right. which is, well, you can't have two bipedal, right. uh, you know, competitors and, <clears throat> and the, you know, the hair on the breasts and, and right. walking yeah. the man and all that stuff. You make that case very well. Yeah. And, um, and I think, I, I think, there's something to be said for that. And now things have shifted because like I referred to Erica earlier, she admits fully as a primatologist anthropologist, she says it's a very strange film. Yeah. So that's different. That's different than the, the old, old guard, let's say yeah. Yeah. in the sixties. She admits it's a strange film to the point that she says, the joints aren't in the right place. Uh, yeah. They, well, right place for they aren't in the right place for it to be a man in a first suit. Right. But they're in the right place for Patty. Right. Yeah. 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 That's that's that, yeah. That's what I meant. I, yeah. I was the joints aren't aren't in the right place for a hoax. But right. then, but then she's like, that's not enough to convince <laughs> me that there's a you know undiscovered upright walking hominid in North America. So. Well, sure. And that's and that's the point, you know. Here's a quick story. Uh, Benjamin Radford, who is one of those skeptics with the capital S, mm -hmm. nice guy though. We always have a, a very affable exchange when whenever we bump into each other in our 
comings and goings, but he was invited to speak on campus. And uh, I, uh, it was uh, sponsored by the physics uh, department and it was mostly for the physical scientists, but I, but I, I wanted to be the fly on the wall and to hear, hear what he had to say. And, and uh, I was hoping that it was, he was, he was going to be speaking about um, critical thinking and pseudoscience and, mm. and so forth, you know, and in, in the broadest of terms, it wasn't supposed to be a Sasquatch talk, but coming to the ISU campus where I'm a fixture, uh, he couldn't resist, I guess. And constantly he kept uh, foisting um, Bigfoot as the straw man, you know, the punching bag to beat up on as uh, as examples of the pseudoscience and bad journalism and blah, 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 you know. And so at the very end, I sat, I sat on my hands through the question and answer period. And I wasn't going to say anything or to detract or to uh, distract or in any way, but I, I finally, I couldn't. And I raised my hand and, and uh, uh, the guy with the mic came back and, and I, you know, I said, well, it's very, very interesting. You know, you, you have um, laid out this argument of criticism against um, uh, bad shoddy scientific journalism. And yet your presentation, as you criticize these other things like Bigfoot, you know, you exhibited all of the things you were critical of. You cherry picked, you know, you you uh, employed ad hominem attacks. You, you you know all these different different techniques. I said, you know, your um, uh, I said what? But just to boil it down, I said, what would you deem to be evidence worthy of consideration, consideration. And he kind of thought for just a second, he says, well, he said, you have to have a body. And I said, well, no, I said, that isn't evidence any longer. I mean, in the sense of, of suggestive evidence, that's conclusive evidence. I didn't ask you what would prove the existence of Sasquatch. I asked you, what evidence do you think would be worthy of a scientific uh, consideration. See, that's the problem. Yeah. Is they they're they're back here, and they're proposing that you have to jump to here. I agree. And they're, and they're they're you know stepping over the top of all of the intermediate steps. <coughs> and that that uh, I've seen happen or repeated time and time again. <coughs> and that's a real flaw in their thinking. Quite frankly, that's a flaw in their thinking. I agree. Um that you're right that is a flaw in their thinking but i don't think uh, it's i don't think that flaw exists in 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 the entire thinking oh no, no, yeah, no there's no. definitely no, being, I, yeah, yeah. there's definitely elements and yeah. to be honest with you uh dr meldrum i'm trying to figure out how to bridge that gap i well, really, right. really truly am you know and i at every opportunity i have i try, I try to emphasize I'm not proselytizing. I'm not seeking converts to the cause here. I mean, uh, to the to the to a to a position. Yeah, belief. Uh, this belief. is not a cherished belief. Right. right. I said I'm. All I'm doing is presenting evidence. You know, it may seem like I'm more ardent. I'm more strident in that presentation out of frustration sometimes for the uh, for you know for the lack of objectivity and and curiosity. Uh, amongst some of my colleagues and some of my detractors, you know, and so forth. 
or, or of the topic uh, detractors. But but no, I'm not. I'm I'm simply saying, look, here's this remarkable evidence that you're just blowing away because it quote can't exist, right? And so uh, I'm just trying to create a venue. Uh, that per, that allows for the dissemination and the discussion and the evaluation. See, that's one of the things that that's been so uh, gratifying about the the online journal that I edit, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, is you know it's a pretty narrow focus and it's it's got a uh, you know a, a restricted stream of submissions as, as you might expect, but um, in the process of seeking reviewers for book reviews or reviewing manuscripts or comments or editorials, you know, serving on the editorial board, I'm able to pull in people who aren't primarily engaged in this topic, who even would probably demure from engaging it in public, but as an anonymous reviewer, or even someone who, who you know, after they read the paper, they go, hmm, this is kind of interesting. I said, well, would you be willing to write a comment and share some of your thoughts and reactions? And, and they say, yeah, sure. And uh, I mean, there's only been one time, one time in, in almost 10 years now that I've had a reviewer turn me down because they thought that it was shoddy or silly or wasn't worth their time. You know, I go, I shoot high for reviewers. So sometimes I bump into uh, you know, they're just too busy. You know, one of the comments that the guy said, hey, this looks really interesting, but I've got three other papers that I'm under the gun to get reviewed for manuscript for other uh, journals, three other manuscripts. So that kind of thing. But only once did someone write back and say, no, I wouldn't, you know, you know, had some some uh, un unkind things to say about it. Typically, they're very engaged. They find it very interesting, you know, and, and uh, and and welcome the opportunity to interact on on that level. So that's great. That's yeah. That's the uh, that's what I what, what I'm after. That's what I'm all about. Yeah, and that's going. Yeah, and, and me too. If you haven't noticed, sure. Yeah, <laughs> like I I'm all about dialogue. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I I couldn't be any more different than you. It'd be like complimentary. I would say, you sure. know. I'm just, you know, I'm not academic. I'm just a, a blue collar guy. I, I'm a thinker and dialogues, everything, discussions, everything. And uh, again, I'll just remind, you know, like, I'm so glad you participated in the modern day debate, you sure. know, because that really inspired me to get to, to, to reach outside the Bigfoot world. Yeah. I mean, in the Bigfoot world, just kind of preach it to the choir. Sure. And sure. a lot of the choir wants to disagree with you and go straight to <laughs> this, that, or the other, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's not it's not just an either or. It is or it isn't. It's it is, but it's not at all what you think it is. It's right. this or it's this or it's this or it's this. It, you know, it gets complicated pretty quick. <clears throat> uh, you know, we can both admit. You know, the Bigfoot world could be a, a very tribal place, uh, but we. Here at Watch Talk, we try and keep grounded in reality as far as a good, at least a good starting point, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, at this point, uh, Dr. Meldrum, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you. Okay. I'm, I'm going to th throw the panel into the mix, and uh, they're going to ask you some 
some questions and, and sure. so we're just going to keep this kind of discussion going just with different people. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, I'm going to bring in the panel. Bam. Bam. All right. So join us. With, yeah. With us tonight is uh, Ernie, Patrick and Steve. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to switch gears here, man. Turn it right over to Ernie. How you doing tonight? Uh, welcome to the show. You're live with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Excellent. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you for being with us, Dr. Meldrum. My pleasure. Um, if I may, I just, uh, something I had just been dying to ask you, wishing I had the ability to ask you this. Um, I watched a presentation on YouTube that uh, Dr. John Mayanchinsky gave several mm -hmm. years ago. I think it's called the Yakima Sunday Bigfoot Roundup. It was at a Bigfoot conference. And in his presentation at one point, he has a, behind him a, a very large screen uh, sort of slideshow presentation. And uh, one of the things he touched on was how many wildlife professionals and or, uh, you know, outdoor related professions of people um, had come to him, and I think he said, and you, when you, when he and you uh, collaborated some in research, um, and that confided in you, and there are two big columns of every profession that you could think of with outdoor knowledge of wildlife, from forest ranger to timber cruiser, and everything in between, and I wondered if there was any way that you could comment on that, because he said that, uh, you know, many people with that those types of credentials uh, had come to you guys and, and uh, in order to, you know, we told you that uh, with anonymity, you know. Sure. And I just wondered if you could comment on that because I think, you know, credible people like that, their testimony is just, I, I mean, I, it's almost as if you could say to a, a skeptic or a naysayer, you know, how do you explain this? How do you explain this group, this category of people, and their testimony? Yes, uh, it's it's very true. You know, I uh, just as a preface, one time I was on a uh, a uh, phone interview, and uh, there was a caller, and the caller was trying to take me to task. He he cited the the work of Elizabeth Loftus who's known for her work on um, memory and the um, challenges of eyewitness testimony and or um, regressed memory. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically he was arguing that on the basis of her work, uh, memory is just completely unreliable, that, that eyewitness testimony should just be thrown out. You can't use it for anything. And we had our little kind of back and forth and I, I said, well, you know, I think you're, you're comparing apples and oranges. I said, you know, the scenario of, say, a little old lady whose purse was snatched from her standing in front of a lineup of suspects, that's very different than someone from one of those columns you mentioned um, trying to mm -hmm. pick out from a lineup, a lineup that consists of a, a bear, a moose, a wolf, a big yeah. the backpacker. And and he, he wasn't having it. It was so funny, though, because just to, to take it just a little further, he went full circle, you know, 360 on the, in the conversation that 
moderator kind of let him, you know, try to run roughshod over me. And, and uh, in the end, though, he kept getting frustrated. I kept, you know, pairing his, his uh, swipes at me and so on. And he said, if there was an 800-pound gorilla out there, people would be seeing it. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, wait a minute. That's where That's we started. We're trying to tell you. Yeah. Exactly. And I said, but you're disavowing all this, uh, this testimony. And so that's one of the things about those columns is these are people who, who either uh, spend an, an inordinate time, amount of time recreating or they make a living out there in the field and they are very familiar with the, the uh, wildlife that make up that landscape. And, and uh, you know, when they have an encounter that impresses them sufficiently that they're willing to go out of their sphere of comfort and share it with someone who has, you know, right. displayed enough, um, uh, enough uh, discerning uh, discretion and, uh, and uh, you know, genuineness that they have confidence that they are, their story won't be laughed at. Um, you know that that's worth something. That's that's like I said the diff the contrast between <laughs> the little old lady and the experienced outdoorsman. So <clears throat> in John's sphere, uh, John is a professional wildlife consultant and has worked for the Game and Fish for many many years. And then became a private consultant and does uh, contract work for the uh, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and State Game and Fish and and the University of Wyoming. And so he's interacting with these people, with biologists and archaeologists and, and uh, agency personnel and, and members of the tribe and so forth. And that uh, adds, adds an even uh, additional uh, layer of uh, perspective. You're right, they, their testimony is, uh, is worthwhile. And, and they're not always, you know, I, I often think back to a conversation I had with a hunter and he was, uh, he, he felt compelled to share this with me and just to, to look me up. But he said, um, you know, I saw this thing. He said, it must've been a bear, but it didn't have a snout, but it must've been a bear. But, you know, he got up and it walked away on two legs. I've never seen a bear do that, but it must've been a bear. <laughs> he was trying to convince himself this had to be a bear. That's the only thing that made sense in his world. And yet it just wouldn't fit. Couldn't get that square right. peg in the round hole. That square peg in the round round hole, uh, Dr. Meldrum, which is the exact opposite of, oh, it's misidentification of a bear. Right. It, it actually, no, I'm trying to make my mind think I saw a bear. It's right. a completely different psychological yeah. aspect of that. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, great, uh, great question, Ernie, and 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 boy, and you know. well, and if I, I'd like to Jack and uh, get one more tag here on um, something you mentioned when uh, when naysayers want to bring up the fallibility factor in eyewitness testimony as being some sort of statistical proof to demonstrate. That uh, alleged Bigfoot eyewitnesses must be mistaken. What they're missing is they're they're not even applying the right scenario for the analogy because the little old lady doesn't misidentify the species 
of her attacker. Right, right. You know, right. and that's kind of like what you were what you were laying out. It's like they can't even come. It's not even a fair analogy to try to make an argument to begin with. Right. You know, I agree. So, yeah. I, and I wish more Bigfooters could sort of kind of shut, shut down those, uh, you know, alleged statistics that are going to prove everything for the naysayers because they're really just empty. They, they don't really even apply. Well, and I'll, I would uh, I'd refer you to so there. <laughs> I'd refer you to the relic commonwood inquiry. We just published not too long ago a paper uh, which evaluated a, a large data set of, of eyewitness testimony. And one of the authors is a psychologist and uh, was down at uh, at the University of Arizona. Uh, was a former colleague of Richard Greenwell's, and um, uh, I actually wrote oh. a comment to go along with the comments of several others for, uh, on that article. But um, oh, I'm sorry, no, I got I got that wrong. the 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 article was actually published in uh, the Journal of Scientific Exploration. They opted for that route rather than through the RHI. And that's why I got to write the, the, the comment. But what really struck me, in addition to the interesting patterns that they drew attention to and all, was they had, uh, had uh, researched. And just in the past 20 years, there have been a couple of investigators who, um, reacting to Elizabeth Loftus's legacy, have done a lot more research on memory and actually have almost done a 180, where they argue from the point of research data and clinical cases that memory is actually quite reliable under certain circumstances that yes that there it is malleable it is reconstructive it can be influenced you know there are these other factors involved in it but still uh, studies have now shown that that eyewitnesses are actually pretty reliable about certain fundamental aspects and certainly an encounter with a uh, an eight foot tall eight hairy foot biped. Tall. Yeah. All Four foot wide shoulder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Under that category. Yeah. That is what it is. And so it's a great, it's a great yeah. paper. So the Journal of Scientific That's Exploration, right. it'd be worth uh, taking a look at uh, if just to get familiar with the, um, the new literature that's out Absolutely. there. All right. Hey, uh, let's move on. Okay. Uh, Thank you very uh, much. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, uh, Patrick Bond to the stream. Uh, what, what do you, uh, what do you got for Dr. Meldrum tonight? Uh, for being a, a skeptic with a capital S, that was me. <laughs> uh, and that was changed, hmm. uh, with, with, with a couple of encounters. I can also I can I can honestly say that I completely understand disbelief of the target species and the perception of it, because we are I, I was so hardwired and trained that these things do not exist, that it literally took me three encounters to be able to wrap my head around. Okay, this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I went from they don't exist, they never did, mm -hmm. to to there's a phenomenon out there that will make you believe there's a Bigfoot to a third encounter of, okay, we need to get in truck and leave because it's real. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to make that statement. I understand this belief. Right. Well, I've, I've had many an experience with individuals who, uh, 
Well, to, to, to start off with, I, ha I had a past department chairman, uh, the one I uh, who actually hired me, and he was not, when I went down this path, he was not happy at all with this uh, turn of events. And uh, at every opportunity, he made that uh, quite clear, either to me or to my my fellow colleagues in the, in the department behind my back. And um, uh, one of the statements that was uh, came back to me that he made to, uh, uh, to another member of the department was, I was born and raised in Idaho. I've hunted and fished all across the state. If there was something like this out there, I would have seen it. <laughs> and I have heard from other people mm -hmm. a similar sentiment, but then follow up just as you did. Yep. Where they say, if it was out there, I, you know, I would have seen it. But just last year, you'll never believe what happened. <laughs> and, and that's all it takes. Yeah. Is that <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the one thing that people mm -hmm. forget, I think, or, or don't quite have a, a sense of is the rarity, you know, when, when they, um, when they see tables and they see maps with pins all over them, they think, or they have uh, these, their favorite documentary states, Bigfoot's been reported from every state in the union. You know, they're literally across the map. Uh, they think that, uh, that you should, if they, if they actually exist, like this fellow who said, if there's an 800 pound gorilla out there, people would be seeing it. Well, they do, but they see it very infrequently very syrup, uh, well, surreptitiously and by serendipity <laughs> over the word homonyms there. But yeah. uh, um, it, it uh, you know, people like me that go out and spend all this time in the field rarely have any kind of uh, 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 success at finding trace evidence, let alone a visual encounter. And uh, almost all the credible reports out there are uh, encounters by chance. They're purely by... Yeah. I look and so so yeah it's it's a it's a rare event and and you know you say well no, no one no one wins the lottery you know I've bought tickets all my life and I've never won well there's a whole list of people who have won mm -hmm. <laughs> you know but it just doesn't yeah. happen very often well I was it took until I was 30 years old my grandfather I'm a third generation tracker Okay. okay. My grandfather was a tracker. My father was a tracker. I'm a I'm a primitive uh, living skills instructor and tracker. Ah, and it took me till thirty. It took me to thirty years old, to and, and and using those skill sets into going into areas that people don't usually go into. That's where I run into something that shouldn't exist. Right. And uh, and it was, I can understand how I can show someone a deer track and it's a deer track. They accept that. And I can show someone a hog track, and it's the same. They accept that. I can show someone uh, a Sasquatch track or a handprint that doesn't exist. Right. I understand that. It's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate wiring of our minds. Right. But, but yeah, I understand it. Yeah. That's great. All right. Good job. Uh, Steve, what do you have for Dr. Meldrum tonight? Well, first of all, I'd like to say thanks. In uh, December of 2019, the Friday before Christmas, I sent an email with a half a dozen questions about DNA. You aimed me at uh, Dr. Haskell Hart. Yes. Okay. Good. And I'd really like to thank you for that. I, I learned a whole lot from that, and that probably helped to light the fire under his chair to get that book done. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. 
that's a great read and it's a, it you know, a, a must read for people who uh, who have uh, been subject to some disinformation unfortunately so it, it sets the record straight and it's a great primer I mean I I was really glad to see that he wrote it in such a way that even people who don't have the background in in uh, DNA analyses can get a handle uh, on on it sufficiently that they can you know make their way through his book and and see the arguments and uh, see the shortcomings of of the claims to the contrary so it, uh, worthwhile yeah so I have a question now the I, I I go back and forth on the Patty film. Most of the time, I'm convinced it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. There is one thing that kind of sits on my head with this, and uh, I was reminded of this by a question someone asked me. So if Patty is a female, most large primates don't have a sagittal crest. Do you have any thoughts on the sagittal crest? Right. Well, first, first off, the... The dichotomy, the simple, simplistic dichotomy that males have sagittal crests and females don't amongst the primates is, is oversimplified. It's not, it, th there is a gender element. I mean, the male uh, body responding to higher levels of testosterone um, uh, produces some secondary skeletal characteristics, including the sagittal crest that are more prominently developed. But it's also a functional aspect. I mean, the reason for a crest, the reason we don't have a crest is because we've got plenty of real estate up here for our very uh, rudimentary temporalis muscles. They, they have plenty of room to attach on this large area because they, they since to become very small. In an animal that has a small brain, there's a, a much more limited surface area. And with more massive muscles, in order to provide additional area, these ridges, these crests are thrown up. So um, if you look at very large, in cases where there are very large female gorillas, there are cases. Um, I've, I've had this conversation with Esteban Sarmiento, that most people will recognize that name, who has spent a lot of time with uh, the great apes in the field and in the laboratory. And uh, he concurs. And I've got examples. I mean, I've posted examples before pulled from from my uh, bookshelf that show females with a sagittal crest that are quite large. Anyway, so if that's the case, then if you go to the size of a Sasquatch, the females far exceed the dimensions of a male gorilla, and yet their brain mm -hmm. has not uh, is, is on par proportionately with that of a gorilla, <clears throat> if not maybe a little bit bigger then um, there, there would be uh, conceivably the need for a sagittal crest, even if you're a female like Patty. Now, having said that, going back to the film, it's not exactly clear um, just to what extent Patty actually shows a crest. She clearly has no frontal bone arising from uh, the level of the brow. It slopes back rather decidedly from her, her heavy brow over her eyes. And it's higher, her skull is higher in the back than in the front, which suggests that maybe, it seems to, I shouldn't, I should, let me, let me rephrase that. It appears that her head is higher in the back 
than at the front. I'm not sure if it's her skull or not. And there have yeah, been yeah. some people who commented, it almost appears that her hair is kind of standing up in a shock uh, as, um, uh, as she's walking, whether it's, it's probably not the bouncing because she has such a smooth gait. She's not bobbing like we do on our extended uh, uh, support limbs. But, um, but primates often have a more developed, um, what we call a pilo erection, the uh, hair standing up on end in order to make them look bigger. If you ever see an agitated chimpanzee, for example, you know, that three inch hair, it stands up like it's uh, full of static electricity. Make and it makes them look big. Exactly. It makes oh. them look big. I mean, uh, your dog does it to a, a lesser degree. You know, if Razor you look, back is what we call yeah, it. Exactly. The ridgeback or whatever, you know, the bristles. Or, you know, we have, uh, we've got little Shelties. And, and when they get agitated out in the front yard, you know, boy, their tail sticks up and the hair on their tails just stands up on completely mm -hmm. on it. And so anyway, so that's the other possibility. There, there could be either of those. So, you know, again, I, I, I just caution people who get very adamant about one or the other that we're really not quite sure um, to what degree there is um, the development of the sagittal mm -hmm. crest. And, uh, and mm -hmm. if it proves that, that she does, or, or, you know, another picture of a female shows unmistakable that, that I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell, even with a uh, an extant gorilla. The large males have a very pronounced uh, fatty pad uh, of, of fat and connective tissue that sits on top of that crest. Um, so what you're seeing in the shape of their head, with that, especially with that dome, isn't uh, an ever rising um, sagittal crest, but it's it that profile is augmented by the presence of that fatty tissue um on top of the crest so yeah you know it's hard it's hard to know exactly what we're looking at okay but, but the presence of a crest in a female ape is not contradictory to nature to uh, the possibilities fair um, enough okay all right uh, let me well, go to yeah. the other end of the body yeah practically speaking if i see a line of footprints in the dirt at a campsite out in the woods somewhere, maybe out in the middle of nowhere. Right. What sort of characteristics would I want to look at to determine if it's more interesting than just another hiker? Right. Well, obviously the first one is size. So if you're over, <clears throat> if you're over 11 inches, you've narrowed it down to about half of 1% of the population. So uh, size is the, is the first thing. We seem to have a plethora recently of, of uh, footprints that get reported to me that are between eight and 11 inches in length. And so right off the bat, then you, you've got to be suspicious of, even if it's in a remote and out of the way place. But then there are other characteristics that, that, uh, that are tells, um, you know, the, the Sasquatch foot has a much greater breadth to length ratio in both the heel and the forefoot. So when you see these, you know, well, if we're talking about hoaxes versus non-hoax, you see these swim fin shaped feet with a little narrow heel. They're usually artificial extensions of a human footprint that are just widened out to, to increase the length and breadth, but they 
you know, leave, leave a narrow heel. But a nice, uh, broad, rounded heel on the Sasquatch foot, a relatively flat foot. Now, the Sasquatch having a very flexible foot is capable of twisting in a supination posture that raises the medial side of the foot. It doesn't look exactly like a longitudinal arch of a human, but it's similar enough to someone not experienced with that would say, well, look, it has an arch. But usually flat-footed, and, and also, since they don't have a permanent arch with weight particularly disposed over uh, limited points of pressure, namely the heel and the ball, um, they don't have a well-differentiated, differentially thickened ball so of their sole pad. It's more uniform thickness across the entire uh, a foot, as evidenced from, for example, um, uh, examples where they say have stepped on a stone. There's a couple of interesting articles. One was written by Susan Cashel, a paleontologist many years ago, um, <clears throat> evaluating a footprint from the Blue Mountains outside of Walla Walla that stepped on a stone. And she actually estimated the sole pad thickness of this creature based on that. I think she was a little bit excessive, but nevertheless, it was an interesting paper. So um, flat foot, um, lack of differentiation of a ball. The toes tend to be more subequal and, of course, spread, spread out a bit more, more tendency for, for splaying than in a typical human. And humans, because of our habit of wearing shoes, at least most of the year, um, often have a little toe that's literally bent over on its side. And that's a, a dead giveaway. I mean, we had a case here in Idaho up near Grangeville where a, a newspaper delivery truck driver claimed he saw a Sasquatch and had this really sketchy photograph and a line of footprints across this uh, kind of frosty um, uh, soil. But, you know, the prints were there in, in the soft fallow um, field. This, this guy had a, not only did he have a hyper arch, but but he clearly wore cowboy boots. His toes were about as pinched as you could imagine. And the little toe was completely on its side. You could even see the imprint of the nail clear over on the far side. And uh, I mean, there was just no question. It was The guy had a pretty big foot. This one was almost 12 inches long. So he's a tall guy. But um, so those are the tells. The, the, the length, you know, the size, the, the breadth to length ratio. Um, the uh, flat, flexible foot sometimes will show a mid-tarsal pressure ridge because of the uh, tendency to push off from the forefoot, the lack of a differentiated ball, the uh, more equal-sized toes, so you don't get that huge jump from the big toe to this little grape-like second toe, third, fourth, fifth, down at an angle. The toes tend to be more evenly spread with a less, I mean, there, there is a differential. They do have a big toe but it's not as big by comparison and the yeah, yeah. ability to display. And, and even, even if walking through there, it would be a completely different shaped foot, <laughs> you know, at a 14 inch track, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh yes. 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 I mean, yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to get a, a, a copy of the mold of his foot. I've, I've had a couple of big basketball players come into my lab and let me take molds, but their feet were only about 13 inches long. And, but they look like bananas compared to yeah. the Tom's foot. 
which yeah, is yeah. rather gracile. Yeah. The uh, the female breadth to length ratio is a little bit less, noticeably less than than the big males that are you know a good inch inch and a half broader for length than the females. Females almost look parallel sided. They don't have much flare. And I'm I'm generalizing, and there's probably a lot of overlap, as you would expect in, in any population. But you know, if you take Patty and the other big male at that time in that region was the the famous uh, Jerry Crew was the first publicized uh, documentation of it, but it was cast by other people at other times over uh, over a number of years in that region. Um, Man, it's it's you know a full 17 inches and much broader at the at the uh, uh, forefoot uh, has a more of a wedge shape compared to Patty's rather gracile parallel sided foot outline. Wow, I wow. think it makes a good male female um, contrast. All right, all right. What do you what got? Do you got? No. Nope. Hey. Good to be here and uh, good to talk to you, Jeff. I had a quick question. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Olympic pod projects, uh, the nests that they found, and yeah. if you think they are Bigfoot related? Yeah, um, I do. I do. I, I think very, very highly of them. I think I think it's a fascinating incident. Uh, I mean, from the very get-go, the the timber cruiser who identified them has spent. You know, he's one of these guys that we'd add to that list that spend an inordinate amount of time in the woods, came upon them and immediately uh, uh, came to the conclusion that these were not just simply bear beds. This was something different and unusual. They were removed and remote, tough to get to um, <clears throat> from even the nearest road. And that road was behind a locked gate on private forest uh, forest company land and uh, lumberland and um, do, do, you know know about, do you know yep. about how old the surrounding forest was uh with the nest as far as the the, the growth i don't i mean they they had <clears throat> there were there were uh huge mature trees uh um from my recollection of it but i don't know how long that stand had gone without uh without any harvesting um they held off. They agreed, uh, the forest, uh, the, the timber company agreed to hold off and uh, uh, forestalled cutting for five years. So they, they apparently weren't in a hurry to uh, get in there. Uh, although I understand that's, that's expired now. But uh, <clears throat> so when, um, when I finally was uh, invited to come and examine the site, <clears throat> One of the things we did was uh, we cut a, a pie-shaped wedge out of one of the nests. Uh, just brought some uh, pruning shears and uh, and uh, literally cut down through the material. Carefully pulled that wedge out and we bagged that. And then you could see the stratigraphy, the the layers, and <clears throat> pardon me, the internal structure. <clears throat> it wasn't just a a hummock of detritus, you know, forest duck that you would expect with a bear that just scrapes things into a pile. I mean, all they're interested in is basically getting a, a layer between them and the ground to, for insulation. But uh, there were sticks, you know, sticks uh, half inch to oh, an inch in diameter that had been 
pulled in there and, and kind of just interwoven, not interwoven in any intricate way at that point, but just laid on there, uh, cross-hatched and then debris on top of that. And then uh, by debris, I mean just forest stuff and so forth. But then <clears throat> the location was really quite strategic. It was up on the crest of a about a 300 foot drop, you know, steep angle down to the, um, the, the brook down below, which was big enough that salmon could come up and spawn in it. And, um, and then, and then it, across the backside of this location, there was like a big hedgerow of uh, evergreen uh, blueberries. And these in this forest grow to be about uh, eight feet tall. And something had, I mean, you could clearly see, I, but when I got there, like it was, they had been monitoring the area for probably about three and a half, four years. And so there was uh, quite a bit of growth, but you could still see where they had originally been pinched off the, the green sprouts. And then of course, mm. you know, you remove the apical meristem, then the side branches grow. And so you had these little crowns everywhere that, a, that the uh, sprouts had been, uh, the, the boughs had been pinched off. And those had been contributed to the uh, added to the nest, not just heaped up, but they were literally woven in. They would, they had uh, stuck the stems in first and then literally plated the boughs. So you had this nice gentle depression with a rounded rim that was big enough for, you know, uh, somebody at least as big as me, if, and if not bigger, to curl up kind of in a fetal position. You're not like, not like a cot stretching out. The thing that really struck me was uh, one of the nests was smaller. It was only uh, about a foot and a half, two feet across. And it was built in the crook of a shrub about two feet off the ground. And you looked at that and the first thing you thought it was a bassinet. And, uh, and it's like you know, the light kind of went off because I was even from the very get go when they described these and, and any report of nests. You know, you know I'm, I'm always wondering, yes, these animals are rare, but if they're making nightly nests like a gorilla, you would expect in a, in a temperate forest to find evidence of that kind of more, more uh, widespread than, I mean, you know, in the Virunga Mountains <laughs> or down in the Congo, things grow so fast that, uh, that uh, you know, any, any night nest on the ground is going to be just overgrown within a matter of weeks. And so or if not days but anyway um so the thought was rattling around why why this kind of anomalous discovery and uh, and then that that's when the 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 uh, penny seemed to drop that uh, maybe this was a birthing event now birthing events are, are rare I, I suspect if if we can bracket on the basis of other grade eight natural history parameters they're they're long-lived and reproduce infrequently uh orangutans only give birth every oh six to seven years uh and so uh maybe that this was a rare birth event and some of the clan kind of got together to support you know the aunties to help the midwifery and the male to protect the the group and so forth you know there were a couple of interesting artifacts by one nest there were two rocks that had to have been brought up from the stream bed 
that clearly showed marks of percussion as if they were used to clack together for signaling mm -hmm. or whatever. Who knows what? Uh, do, you do you recall the elevation uh, of these nets? Well, it wasn't very high. I mean, this was uh, this was right back behind uh, behind uh, Derek Randall's residence, and and it's out there uh, on the far side of the sound. It's it, less than a thousand feet, probably in elevation. So it's uh, it's not. I mean, there was a there was well, not. I, I I let me take that back. Maybe a couple thousand feet because. I mean, obviously, there was a bit of topography. As I said, it was about a 300-foot drop down that one slope. Maybe that's maybe that's an overestimate, 150 feet. But it was pretty steep. I mean, pretty steep, pretty far down to the to the stream. Um, but still, this whole area is pretty low. We're not up into way up into the Olympic Peninsula and Olympic Forest. This wasn't their site up up north where they have their uh, you know, they're building their uh, facility. It was much closer to uh, Derek's home. We uh, <clears throat> carefully went through and pulled out every fiber we could find at the time. And then we also picked through, I mean, part of the reason for bringing the uh, pie section home is I let that air dry and have students go through it under the dissecting scope and collect every, um, every fiber they could find uh, you know they and they were thorough there was a lot of uh of uh, lichen and <laughs> mycelium and things like that and also any any whole leaves that we could identify various plants and and uh, there were some hair that that fit what we call the gold standard that is they have the characteristics that tenor Fahrenbach kind of delineated after looking at numerous uh, previous reports and, and samples that, that came to his attention of what appeared to be primate hair uh, of indeterminate origin. And some of these hairs matched up to that. We did take core samples. There were several nests that had been kind of sheltered so no one could go near them or get in them. You know, you'll see some photos of people demonstrating uh, for scale and for utility uh, lying in the nest. And in those that were untouched, I went in, you know, gloved and masked and everything, and took core samples from the um, soil in the in the center of the nest. We sent that to Todd Dissetil at NYU. He ran a pretty cursory uh, examination, and the only primate DNA was uh, human in his estimation. And I pressed him on this. This kind of brought it to a head because I I pressed him on that. And uh, he was looking at one part of one mitochondrial gene, which, um, if you look at Neanderthal and human sequence, has several substitutions uh, that differentiate the two species. And I said, okay, well, that's good for Neanderthal. I mean, you've identified a, a marker or a stretch that differentiates Neanderthal and human, but that, there's no telling that Sasquatch has those same substitutions. And, uh, and you could be looking at two identical stretches of DNA in comparisons between human and Sasquatch. He, he, <clears throat> he didn't think that that was likely to be the case. <clears throat> so I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been asking this question, because this is what we keep running into. On those rare occasions when DNA is recovered, it almost invariably 
comes back as human. And it's assumed it's either because of contamination due to handling by the witness or that it's simply a misidentified human hair. But the third possibility that no one has addressed because it requires time and money and man hours, uh, manpower, um, is are we sequencing sufficient to differentiate a very closely related species? And I've started using a simple analogy uh, that, that I think illustrates it quite well and people can grasp. We could be talking about a, a level of difference on the order of, say, um, a half a percent or one-tenth of one percent. You know, if chimps are identical to us up to 98% by some estimates, some measures, then this creature, if it, especially if, it's, if it is a hominin uh, on this side of the separation between chimp ancestors and, and human ancestors and relatives, um, it could be very close to us. So imagine you've got an advents calendar, you know, with the little doors to get your chocolate, you know, 24 little, little windows to open up until you get to Christmas. But now let's imagine you've got a thousand windows, okay? And if we say for the sake of this argument, it's, it's one-tenth of one percent, then that means only um, uh, ten windows. Yeah, ten windows. Am I doing my math right? Ten windows will have some information behind them that differentiates us from them. But you have a study that only finances and, and allows enough time to open ten of those thousand windows. So what are the odds that you open up a window that actually has a <laughs> a piece of chocolate in it that isn't empty, you know? And if if the ten that you have come out um, uh, as as not one of those non-ten, um, then the results are going to simply indicate that what you're looking at is human DNA. Exactly. And I think that's what we run into. So, yeah. It's a it's a it's a funding issue. It's a to taboo issue. Well, that's you know, exactly. See, I, I, mean, I who, yeah, I've who reached wants? out. I've reached out to many many labs, <clears throat> and you know some of the best ones that are doing that are regularly doing DNA of great apes for various studies, mm -hmm. and uh, invariably they not interested. You know, don't want to. Don't, either they they make a polite. I don't have the time. Or they're quite frank and say, well, you know, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. And, so. and I'll be honest well, with you, Dr. Yeah. Like, from, from my point of view, that, that's kind of understandable. Oh, it is. You in, know, in this, I mean. In this age of publish or perish, you know, these labs are dependent yeah. on a steady uh, uh, source of funding. And if that were put at risk or, you know, they can't justify having – one of their postdocs who would otherwise be producing doc, uh, uh, publications and, and writing grants um, uh, work on a high-risk subject that might not turn up a, a result in, in the uh, allotted time. It's, it's, you know, it's water under the bridge. It's wasted yeah. time. Meanwhile, they've got paid projects that are uh, footing their bills. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. And, and I would say... And this has become a new thing in the Bigfoot world that is is not understood correctly. Is that it would be the same with environmental DNA, which is cutting edge technology. It would be oh, the sir. same. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been in conversations with a, a, a molecular biologist who's who's eager to, to undertake this, but he says, you know, I'll need a postdoc and, and support for the postdoc and a graduate student or two, because it's a it's not just a couple of weeks. We're talking about a multi-year project. This was the researcher who led the international team to look at Loch Ness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They spent three years before they had results to publish, yep. conclusions drawn. And so, um, you know, when when once we get past COVID, this put a kink in our plans right, uh, right. with restrictions on international travel and recruiting of international students and so forth. Uh, New Zealand's pretty tight uh, borders at the moment. So uh, when we get past this, this is this is what we hope to do. But it's going to cost, you know, several hundred thousand dollars to finance this project. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. I've got a few people in mind and a few organizations in mind. I think we can uh, cobble that together, uh, plus his resources. But, but yeah, it's got to be a, it has to be a major uh, commitment, major undertaking to do yeah. it. And, and I think it's important to point out in all, everything that was just discussed, especially with DNA, because there's there's a misconception, I'll say, in the Bigfoot world that, hey, if you find something in out there in the woods, say, albeit hair or dung or uh, blood even, whatever it is, hey, you can go down to your local, on, you know, Main Street on the corner DNA shop and hand it over to them and say, you should look at this. And oh, by the way, look yeah. for undiscovered primate. Yeah. It, you know, like, I mean, it, it, there's a mis and, and even with eDNA, with environmental DNA, that Bigfooters can just go collect it from sure. an environment yeah. that maybe they found a trackway. Let's say, right. Dr. Meldrum, uh, let, let's say they found a legitimate trackway and they could just collect it in their little thing, wearing gloves or whatever, and send it off to who? <laughs> I mean, right. you, you know, yeah, I know. With, I what get, price? I, I get I get inquiries about that all the time, and I, yeah. you know, and I have to say, well, you know, I, you know, whether it's hair or whatever, do I'm happy to stick a hair under a microscope, uh, and take a close look at the uh, morphology, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally not set up, and I just don't have any other context. The only person who's really stepped up to the base, uh, to the plate, uh, consistently has been Dr. Disatel at NYU, and. Uh, but, you know, again, if I may, uh, yeah. could I go back to the hair? Uh, yeah. I, I, I realize I, I've been aware of the Dr. Henner Fehrenbach's uh, uh, cataloging of these various samples. And, of course, what what information had been available that I could find over, you know, just years of delving into studying and reading anything I could. Um, that. You know, I, I understand that typically, you know, the, the hairs are lacking the central medulla. Right. They're naturally tapered on the ends. They're wild. They've never been cut. And while they may resemble human and, and, and they're certainly um, considered to be primate by their morphology, but if they all are so, you know, it, I'm just always so stunned that if we actually have physical evidence, actual hair, of yeah. unknown primate that right. that doesn't just flip the table for so many people. I can't believe that Bigfooters themselves don't point to it more often. And I'm curious to know, um, 
is Dr. Firebach's collection sort of, is it still curated somewhere? Is it ongoing? Uh, can you talk, comment on that? I can, yes. He, he uh, is spending his time now looking through a telescope instead of a microscope down in, in the Southwest. That's his, his uh, passion now. And he has kind of washed his hands of it. And um, what, what he no. saved, what, what, what uh, materials he did save as far as, you know, micro uh, photomicrographs and so forth, he has passed on to me. Um, and so, and I have, uh, oh. like I said, I welcomed people sending their samples uh, to me to, to look at. And, and, you know, unfortunately, because as, as been, has men been mentioned earlier, Hair persists in the environment uh, and is easily uh, misassociated with a particular event. And um, so literally, you know, eight or nine times out of 10, a sample that's sent to me turns out to be something other, uh, easily, easily attributable mm -hmm. to deer or a, a coyote or something like that. Um, so we're kind of carrying on like that. And I, I tried, I really, really pressed Henner. You know, at one point he was uh, hooking up with some folks at Ohio State University and um, they had done some DNA analysis on some samples, including some samples from China. And, uh, you know, they, um, they let slip a little bit of preliminary result and it created such a furor in the press that they kind of backed off. I don't know if there was pressure from the university or from colleagues, but um, Hanner, Hanner was, uh, he was dependent, I think a little bit on hitching the morphology to a definitive DNA analysis. And, uh, and he, you know, he saw those as interlinked. And when the DNA disappeared, he was uncomfortable, uh, was uh, not secure in his convictions about what the take-home message from the hair really was. The problem is, the problem is that the, the, the morphology, I mean, unless you really got down into cuticle structure, and this is, we still could do this. I hope to do this eventually at some point, but the cuticle structure, the follicle structure, and so forth, there are some humans that have hair that is comparable to our samples. Sasquatch hair is not much different in coarseness, in texture of the average, and there's a, a range of variation, uh, human hair. Some human hairs, particularly light blonde hair, toeheads lack a cellular medulla. That cellular medulla mm. tends to add some structural stiffness to the shaft of the hair. Um, but uh, and so, and so some people could look at this alleged Sasquatch and say, oh, well, that's just a human. Well, how would you arbitrate that contention with DNA? Unfortunately, the lack of the cellular medulla means there's very little nuclear or mitochondrial structure that would contain DNA. It's just a keratin shaft, yeah. extracellular protein, um, in, in the, in the uh, cortex. And it's, uh, it's very difficult. See, this was the hope. See, uh, when uh, Brian Sykes came on the scene, he claimed that he had this technique to uh, clean the hair shaft of any contaminants 
and then digest it and free up any trace DNA from more more um, efficiently from the shaft of the hair. So I was thinking, you know, crossing my fingers, this is it. Then this is the breakthrough, because that's been our challenge. Well, unfortunately, his design, you know, and I hate to speak uh, ill, and he's not here to rebut, but uh, his his paper was uh, more of a distraction than it was a, an, an assist. Um, he, I, I offered to screen the samples morphologically so that he could focus his tests on, on samples that fit the gold standard. And he said, oh, no, 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 we can't impose mm -hmm. a, a presupposition about what Sasquatch hair looks like. And I said, well, if you open the barn doors, everything in the barnyard is going to come in. Um, you're going to be testing everything under the sun. And sure enough, if you, look, if you look at his paper, you know, the laundry list is long. I mean, even down to porcupine guard hairs. Yeah. I pulled a porcupine up to the light here in the office without even a microscope and, and tell you what it was probably with a little familiarity. I mean, the, the coarseness and anyway. And so, but, but the, the important thing was that um, there were samples some of my own included, that weren't acknowledged in his um, study uh, as having been received and incorporated. And I had some that were gold standard. I mean, I had some, you know, uh, I, because despite his um, his demurring at that, uh, that offer, to taking my offer up, I invited people to, to um, transit their samples through me, and then I selected those that were the best. That, that were the most uh, likely that fit the gold standard and, and, and screened, you know, I mean, there's, it's really easy to pick out, for example, the deer hair. They have a medulla that looks like uh, frothy bubbles. It's just, it's in it almost the width of the shaft of the hair. Again, it's very simple to differentiate things like that. Anyway, my point is this, a study which concludes that all of the samples received and tested turn out to be attributable to other forms of common wildlife, that's a very different conclusion than if he had demonstrated that 90% of the samples he received were readily attributable to other wildlife, but here were 10% that we just couldn't get DNA from for some reason. And interestingly, they all have the same morphology. That would have been a totally different conclusion. But I fear, and I don't, I, you know, I say this tentatively because I cannot prove it, other than uh, in, by inference, by the fact that there were samples, not only mine, but other people who claimed to have sent samples in that were never uh, acknowledged in his list of, of uh, contributors, and sample numbers, and so forth. If he, if he threw out of the study samples that didn't yield DNA, then I think he threw the baby out with the bathwater and did a real disservice, very, you know, honestly and bluntly, a very a real disservice to us by, because um, this is the problem. Every time, it's just like when the FBI story broke, you know, that Peter Byrne had submitted a sample to the FBI for analysis. He, yeah. he doesn't remember ever having received a re result, a uh, reply, but they had it on file. Someone got it through freedom of information uh, request, and uh, uh, it was uh, it, it turned out to be deer. 
Well, one, I was I was quite impressed that the FBI actually took the time to test his sample to examine it under the microscope. You know, I can just imagine whoever opened that envelope from Peter. But but the uh, uh, the sad thing is, one, uh, Peter should have known better. He should have done his work before he submitted the sample because it it added one more um, uh, a bit of grist to the mill every time. Because it, it, it adds to the narrative that every time somebody takes an official um, uh, authoritative examination and takes a look at one of these samples, it turns out to be something common and misidentified. And so that's the, I, the impression that everyone goes away with. They don't know. They never hear about the samples that didn't yield DNA. They, didn't, they don't realize that there's this whole collection of hairs that defy attribution to anything other than possibly a human. Oh, and I meant to say when I said there are some humans, especially toeheads, that's really the distinction is we've got the full range of color phase for Sasquatch, what we think is Sasquatch hair, that are all uh, lack of cellular or uh, lack a cellular medulla. Uh, so it's not just the blonde ones, it's the dark black ones have no <laughs> cellular medulla as well, which is not usual for uh. human but if but you know there's all these hairs out there now or, or samples that have been examined that have this consistent morphology where are they coming from <laughs> <laughs> patrick exactly. you, uh, you want to add something to that or? um I, I have a i have a question about okay. hair okay all right if if you shine a spotlight on a sasquatch at 6 feet and its hair does not ref reflect light for your eyes to see it's almost like the light wraps around him is, is there a physical attribute that you know of not that i'm aware of anything that would uh, would cause something like that but so there was no i mean was it illuminated it just wasn't reflective it was um, I, mean, I mean obviously for you to see something light has to bounce back to your eye exactly uh that's what i was getting at uh when you shine a being like that at six feet with a large spotlight and all you see is his eyes, oh, the trees are lit up around it, but it's not lit up. Mm. And when you get closer, you step forward and you put the brightest, whitest spot of that spotlight on their back. And all you see is just the glistening of hair and you can move that spotlight around and you can find different patches you know, of the hair. It's just glistening, but it's not actually showing any color or anything. I, I don't know that 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 would baffle me. I don't know of any uh, mechanism that's understood. Should there be people who'd be very interested in that kind of <laughs> quality to a to a material? Yeah, would bend light. But yeah, or I mean, uh, possibly. Bend light. I mean, gravity bends light. Well, sure. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but not not down here on the surface. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, you know, it takes big objects like the sun to bend light. Um, well, I was just curious if there was a physical something uh, to a hair. Well, you know, some hairs do have some, you know, iridescence, or uh, you know, I don't know if they have the ability to refract light and and disperse it you know scatter light so if 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 in hitting it the light is 
somehow scattered instead of reflected, that would give you your kind of, you know, a ghostly kind of uh, ephemeral appearance. But I don't know what quality, I mean, nothing that I've examined, and I haven't obviously haven't tested things for that, but nothing that I've examined when I open up an envelope would suggest, I mean, it, it should work for low intensity light as well as, as high intensity light, you would think. I, I haven't noticed any uh, effect like that with any samples I've handled, but who knows? I'm, stranger things. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there's always a strange aspect to the phenomena. I mean, it, and I don't mean outrageously strange, like, yeah. you know, again, back to any kind of like fill the void with your own worldview thing. Um, it, but some people report, like Patrick just said, yeah. uh, I, I can't, I can't wrap my head around why the light isn't, you know, shining on this thing like it does normal animals, let's just say. Yeah. It, well, and I want to, let, let me just emphasize too, to your viewers who do lean to more paranormal explanations or rationalizations. Uh, it's not that I'm, uh, uh, I mean, I, I am, I have a certain degree of skepticism, obviously, but, but. So do we. Not, yeah. But it's not that I'm saying those things are just impossible, but I'm approaching the topic as a scientist. And right. one of the mechanisms by which, you know, I've been trained to do that this is the one place where Occam's razor is appropriately applied. Occam's razor, I usually get on my soapbox because it's such a misused, abused notion that has been misconstrued. You know, if you ask people, what, what does Occam's razor or parsimony mean? They'll say, they'll, they'll pipe back and you, know, you hear it in movies and things and <laughs> TV documentaries. Um, the simplest explanation is, you know, more likely to be true, most likely to be true. That's not what Occam said. Occam was a philosopher of science, and strict uh, philosophy of science suggests that, that science, we're, we're incapable of testing all possible scenarios, all possible cases. So we can't prove by exhaustive demonstration that something is, is true. Instead, what we try to do is look for the, that one exception that will knock the legs out from under your hypothesis and cause you to rethink it and modify it accordingly. Well, in order to approach science in a systematic fashion, then, Occam said we should not multiply factors unnecessarily, meaning you start with the simplest explanation and you try to falsify it. You try to knock the legs out from under that before you're justified in moving on to a more elaborate explanation. So as, as a scientist, uh, based on my evaluation of the evidence that's been presented to me, that I've, that I've uncovered myself, my own personal experiences in the field, I haven't been able to knock the legs out from under the hypothesis that this is a flesh and blood creature. It's a bipedal primate, you know, but I could be proven wrong. I mean, I could be, I could experience those things, but every time I've gone out with someone who has, who, who claims repeated experiences like this, like orbs of light, for example. Um, 
I, this one gentleman uh, was insistent. So I said, well, do you have any photographic evidence? Oh, yes, of course I do, he said. So I said, well, will you send me your best picture illustrating an orb? <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, sure. So he, he emailed oh, me a wow. picture. It was a flash picture at, at night yeah, in yeah. the forest, and the pine trees were pollinating. Piece and every, every, every <laughs> piece of pollen was illuminating, yeah. and those were his orbs. He was mm -hmm. adamant that yeah. those were the orbs. So, you know, that's the, wow. that's the kind of experiences that I have. Yeah. And, well, I, but I, I systematically went through trying to debunk. I spent eight years yeah. trying to debunk this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what I did is I took the knock. Because everybody says, oh, they knock. Sure. Yeah. So I took the knock out away from Sasquatch and took the knock out and used it until I had a third encounter. So I, that I could not debunk Sasquatch any further. Uh, my hypothesis of it's a known animal uh, uh, doing a, an unknown action after the sun goes down went out the window. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, and as far as the hair and the reflection goes, I'm not. You know, some I've heard some people call it woo, that they yeah. cloak. Yeah. But to debunk that, I step forward. I can still see it in the light. It didn't disappear. It was physically there. Right. It's just there's something about the hair didn't work out. Right. So hominid with octopus capabilities, if you would, Doctor <laughs> Meldrum. Um. I, there, there's a couple of things I want to touch on here uh, real quick. And this is important to me. Uh, this is something you'll never hear in the Bigfoot world. Uh, but I'm going to say it and we're going to talk about it, Dr. Meldrum, because I've always wanted to pick your brain about this. Square cube law. Square cube. Do you think there's a limit to their size? Oh, oh. Yeah, I do. I mean, I I think, uh, um, you know, there there certainly there there are limits, uh, mechanical constraints, physical constraints to to how big a creature can be without uh, drastically modifying their uh, morphology. I mean, in you know, gravity for a biped. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't take a mouse and make it the size of an elephant without turning it into an elephant. I mean, the, the, the robusticity of the skeleton, the alignment of the, of the limb segments and the, the joints involved and so forth. Um, and other aspects, obviously, of the, the physiology and so on. Is, uh, so yeah, that but, but even better, I mean, I get, we, can, we have an example of a 15-foot-tall biped. It's called a Tyrannosaurus rex. It looks right. nothing like a primate. <laughs> You exactly. Know. Exactly. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. It, uh, it, it has a different morphology and uh, a different uh, different biomechanics. I mean, and yet, and also, it, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex can only get so big before it has to start looking like a brontosaurus or a patasaurus. Mm. You know, so um, the biggest footprint cast that's credible that I have in 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 my lab is 19 inches. Anything over twenty inches, I'm extremely skeptical of, and 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 uh, either its credibility or the ability of the witness to accurately measure an object. 
you don't know how many times I get these these in, inflated length estimates and when you when they send the photo, you know, they've got the tape measure extended two inches in front of the toes and and, uh, and you know, the 15 inch mark is actually uh, an inch and a half past the heel. And they say, oh, yeah, there are 15 inch footprints. And I go, how are you measuring that? And anyway, or a scale. The other day I got a picture and someone had laid down their, their knife and they said it was a 16 inch knife. Well, you know, I have don't don't have a lot to go on, but most knives the handle is a pretty standard dimension, you know, to accommodate. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly to hold it. And this this knife wasn't even uh, uh, fourteen inches in length; it was closer to twelve inches in length. You know, so you get exaggeration. Like anyway, the point being is I don't have anything over nineteen inches, which would translate to uh, probably something that was less than ten feet tall. And is, but it, uh, let's say this uh, to be fair, yeah. To, to the tracks, um, is it possible there could be a twenty-two inch track, you know, that matched up to a ten-foot-tall individual? Maybe because they had, you know, they had right. extra big feet. You right. Know? Oh sure. Oh sure. Yeah. It, it, any any uh, any formula that you come across that say. Uh, uh, represents a uh, foot length to stature relationship is based on a regression line that has variation bounding it yeah so yes you're absolutely right who is it Nap john napier no um ivan sanderson in one of his books showed a picture of, of two men who were the same height and he showed their hands and their feet and even though they were the same height they had slightly different body builds the one guy had a a foot that was a, a full inch and a half longer than the other guys and had a hand span that was a good inch broader than the other guy, but they were the exact same height, close to the same weight. So yes, there's there, there's that kind of variation. You need to take that into account. But but when you have people who, who are asserting that there are true giants that are 15 feet tall, I mean, that, that just doesn't jive anymore with the landscape, you know, with the texture of the landscape, you know, they'd be towering above the trees and so forth. Or, or, or gravity. Right. Well, exactly. And the physical. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah. Tyrannosaurus Rex, 15 feet tall, a complete different design. If you take a primate uh, form, right, you know, bipedal primate form, you put it into a 15 foot scale with gravity. I, I'm sorry, the thing, the thing wouldn't be able to stand up. There, there are problems, and and if you, yeah. if you do any any research into the uh, into the you know the lives, the biographies of human giants, human of exceptional height, they are typically riddled with yeah. uh, you know especially those that are pituitary giants that have yeah. hormonal imbalances, they're riddled with all kinds of other ailments, and oftentimes you see they they walk with canes because their their joints and their bones just don't tolerate that. Uh, Stress. Yeah, I mean, who uh, Robert uh, Robert Wadlow? Uh, that rings familiar. I think. Yeah. I know. Well, the tallest man alive. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, Robert Wadlow. Two canes, you know. And, well, he, uh, and he died at the ripe age of twenty-one. Right. And, and could and barely on, stand up. Yeah. Andre the Giant died at a young, relatively young age. Not, I mean the. Uh, uh, not a ripe old age, but it was right. you know, from complications. Well, he drank. 
Gigante is a million beers too, but yeah, that, that helped. I'm sure. <laughs> but he was truly giant. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've seen pictures of his hand in yeah. scale. I mean, he was he was about as big as Patty, uh, uh, like yeah. roughly. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, some of the proportions. Well, and, and some of the you know, there's sometimes are just disproportionate enlargement of the hands and facial features and so forth. But um, yeah, when you since you mentioned Patty, you know, that was an interesting uh, investigation where Dr. David Daglin kind of took Grover Krantz to task, saying that Grover exaggerated his uh, claim that, uh, you know, there was no human alive that fit Patty's dimensions. And he, he uh, claimed uh, or contradicted that he seemed to. But when I dug into his source, this anthropometric uh, data volume that he uh, referred to, he'd, he'd chosen the wrong metric. Instead of, uh, he was equating chest breadth to a chest tape measure, which goes from middle of armpit around the front of the chest to the other armpit. Well, a curved line is much longer than a straight projected line. Right. But he wouldn't admit the difference. I, I pointed it out to him after his, one of his presentations, and then it appeared in his book. So I took him to yeah. task in my book review. And I went along with the well, there, there, I, there, there is no known. Nobody. There is no known human alive in 1967 that, that matches what we pretty much have dialed in, you know, for Patty's proportions. I think, right. you know, seven to, uh, you know, the, the, the width and volume, the volume yep. of Patty, um, yep. which, which you and I would agree on, Dr. Meldrum. Yep. Um, there, mean, was, even, there was no known. Even if you assume she was only six feet tall. Um, right, correct. And you had other humans that were six feet tall. Her proportions outstripped them by, you know, several inches in every direction. Yeah, and, um, and not, we not have a living, a living witness who was on a horse who said she was about as tall as me on the horse. So, right. so that matches more the seven two. Oh, exactly. Yeah, which makes that volume even bigger. Yeah. And uh, Andre, Andre, Andre the Giant. Is close to those proportions, but not in '67. Because number one, he was 21 years old and much leaner, yeah. and number two, he was verified living in France. So he couldn't. Not even Andre the <laughs> Giant could have filled out that volume. Been there. I, I mean, yeah. we're, we're 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 talking 1980s Andre the Giant. Yeah. You yeah. know. So. So he couldn't have been there to do that and, and, and that volume. And, and so there's really nobody who could fit that bill. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Steve? Pretty singular. I'd like to step back to DNA for just a couple seconds. Uh, most of the time, species identification is done with mitochondrial DNA by sequencing just two genes. And after talking to Dr. Hart and, and also to Dr. Ketchum, I think the better study in the future would look at doing the whole mitochondrial DNA sequencing, which is easier to do with today's technology than it was five or six years ago. 
and that gives you the whole picture of what's there. So you're you've got all thousand windows, and then you can look at all of the windows. Right. That, that's exactly right. In fact, that as I as I queried at every opportunity, uh, geneticists, molecular biologists, and posed this conundrum to them. That was their response. They said uh, more than once, uh, if I were doing it, I would do the entire mitochondrial genome and at least a dozen nuclear genes as well, uh, which can be even more discriminating in some instances. And so um, that's that's what we're up against. That's what we need to do. Uh, if we just keep doing the thing where, you know, it gets sent to uh, to uh, Dr. Distel, I mean, unless he's, you know, I mean, in, in the in uh, in the sense of uh, doing a quick and dirty study for a documentary, say, uh, versus a full blown uh, analysis, or if you ship it off to a, a commercial lab, you know, that has no vested interest, they're just going to do whatever the work order says. Um, you're just going to get a very cursory kind of uh, treatment and end up back at square one yeah. right, in my estimation. So it's, sure. it, yeah, the, the whole so DNA thing is much more complicated than the Bigfoot world. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're steeped in, you know, CSI where you can, uh, you know, just to get, get results right. and test everything. Uh, every cigarette butt has the, Final, final uh, arbitration. So we need the right script. Yeah, need a good reason. We <laughs> we have to listen. We have to give them a good reason to want to look further into it. To me, right. it's actually that logically simple. Yeah, and um, there's a way to do that. <laughs> so, um, sure. we'll but. Get that. Yeah, uh, Brent, uh, I'll give you a, another opportunity here to to say what you think. Uh, about um, I was following the comments. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Cool. Never mind. We're moving on. Um, just kidding. No. Yeah. Like, uh, uh pick Doctor Meldrum's brain. Oh. Okay. Uh. So, uh, back in the mid '90s, you did a surprise visit to Paul Freeman. And uh, he took you out to some trackway, and I was just kind of curious if you wanted to maybe talk about that, and maybe some thoughts that you, you know, just wanted to kind of share with us from your your visit and impressions of Paul Freeman. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd gotten an earful about Paul uh, from other sources. My my uh, interaction with him that didn't just fall out of the sky, but I. I uh, uh, was first introduced to that, um, what was transpiring in that region by way of uh, Richard Greenwell. I was actually on a plane flying back from the Redwoods where we had done a documentary shoot on the uh, Redwoods video, the Playmate video. And uh, he reaches in his uh, briefcase and he hands me a copy of that little paperback, Bigfoot of the Blues, that it's been reprinted as uh, uh, the Walla Walla Bigfoot, because apparently he said there was a lot of confusion about what the blues meant. They thought it was, uh, you know, Bigfoot in Louisiana or something, Bayou country. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, the Blue Mountains of southeastern Washington and eastern Oregon. And he asked me to write a book review. So I, that was my first introduction to what was going on with uh, the author, Vance Orchard, a, a, a columnist in, uh, I think he was based at the Waitsburg Times, but his, his little column was carried in several of the little local newspapers. Ramblin' Times, I think is what he called it, but it was a kind of an outdoorsy uh, column and he was fascinated with Bigfoot. So anything that Paul Freeman discovered or talked about and the, the book was essentially a compendium of his uh, columns sort of strung together and with a, uh, you know, bridging narratives that gave a snapshot of the past 10 years of, uh, of Bigfoot activity in the, in the Blue Mountains there of Southeastern Washington, Northeastern Oregon. And um, uh, so uh, as I read it, Vance is a very, very entertaining, engaging author. There was no uh, criticism there, but, but you're left with, as you are with all journalism, how accurate was he conveying the facts? And so I wanted to uh, do some follow-up with some of the personalities that were listed, uh, you know, mentioned in the book. And so I made myself a laundry list of, of people and I contacted Vance and asked him, you know, got acquainted with him over the phone and he was delighted about my undertaking a review and was more than happy to provide me with a list of contact information. So of course, at the top of that list was Paul Freeman and Wes Summerlin that were some of the central figures, Bill Lowry as well and, and, uh, and Vance himself. And uh, so I did, I followed up and talked to a lot of these people. Some were scattered to the four winds, some were up in Montana and some down in Nevada. And, uh, but I, uh, they were all very forthcoming with uh, information about their experiences, verifying what Vance had said or hadn't said. And, and, um, and then it was um, a series of events, kind of, uh, again, talk about serendipity. Uh, it just happened that as a result of this involvement, um, we, I was in Boise with my family, extended family, and uh, sitting there on the couch chatting with my brother and talking about this documentary. This was the one of the first uh, uh, documentaries that I had been involved with down in the Redwoods. And, uh, you know, I turned to him and, and from Boise, it's only about a, well, it's three and a half, four hour drive, I guess, maybe a little longer than that, up to Pullman, Washington. And I said, you know, let's let's give uh, um, uh, Grover Krantz a call and see if he's if he would allow us to come pay him a visit this weekend. And so he he invited us up, and so we jumped in the truck and headed north, and uh, went up and visited him. Had a great time as he pulled out his uh, cast collection. He, uh, you know, really showed us the whole, the whole works. And uh, I was obviously full of questions. This was the Redwoods video I had thought would be a simple exercise in pointing out the zipper in this videograph, uh, or vid uh, um, video um, segment. And I couldn't find a zipper. And instead, I kept finding more and more subtle details of anatomy that were really quite intriguing. And uh, so this got the wheels the cobwebs dusted off and the, and the cogs turning again, thinking about this 
this issue because I had kind of put it to bed uh, long before. It was just a, a, a fluke, basically, uh, that uh, brought me into contact with Richard Greenwell. And then a couple months later, he calls me up and says, we've got this piece of video evidence. Would you be interested, you know, as a primatologist, as a functional morphologist to, to uh, aid in the uh, evaluation? And um, so it got me thinking about things again. And uh, we went up to uh, Grover's lab and, and saw these things. And he was very gracious. And, and um, when we left, rather than come straight down through Idaho, through McCall, I said, let's, let's make it a little diversion. Uh, stay on the, the freeway, at which you have to go over then to, to uh, um, uh, down through Walla Walla. And uh, we just dropped in on West Summerlin first. And a uh, very interesting conversation with him. He had some examples of footprints and so on. And of course, you know, I'd seen copies of some of this original material in Grover's lab, but to see the originals. Now, with Wes had this unfortunate habit of <laughs> whitewashing his original casts to make them nice and clean so he could hang them up in the house. He had a, he had a cutout, a plywood cutout of Patty, and he'd drive these little finish nails and then drill a hole in his cast and hang it up there. But uh, not realizing that this um, slurry of plaster, he was broad brushing with his coarse paintbrush, was obscuring all of the contact surface details on these casts, mm -hmm. many of which had dermatoglyphics. Because uh, wow. if you look up uh, LUS, uh, glacial LUS uh, distribution across North America, there's a big patch in southeastern Washington and and uh, down into Oregon a little bit, and then a big swap across Southern Idaho. And then you have to go over to the Midwest to, for the next big collections of this very fine powdery soil. So this is why the conditions uh, in the Blue Mountains were uh, very conducive to preserving skin ridge detail. And um, one of, I have one of Wes's original casts that uh, he let me take because he hadn't whitewashed it yet. It's a beautiful cast. The detail's amazing. You can see skin ridge detail quite evident on it, but it's a distinctive individual with a very, with long toes, very, very little webbing between the toes. So it makes the toes look, look longer than, than, uh, than in, in many where they're webbed right on up to that, uh, uh, almost to the second interphalangeal joint. Like Patty, Patty has a, very extensive sole pad and so from below her toes look like peas in a pod but if you watch the film there's one scene when the foot swings and the toes dorsiflex and you can see how long they are um, I had already done a reconstruction of what I thought the skeleton was like and based on the anatomy of the sole and the flexion creases that were evident that indicated where those where those joints should be and then it was only later that I noticed that particular little segment where you can see the toes and they're I, I was it was spot on they, they they agree with what i had had uh, reconstructed anyway so we, we visited with wes we saw these things and then we zipped over to paul as we pulled up in front of paul's house he was just pulling into the driveway and uh, uh we got out introduced ourselves i had spoken with him it wasn't completely a cold call because I had spoken with him a couple of times during my reading of the book, 
and had uh, given him a, a heads up that we hope to come out, but we weren't going to, uh, we, I was talking about coming out during spring break, which was uh, about a month away. So he wasn't expecting us to pop in. There was no, you know, uh, I mean, even if, even if Wes had called him after we had left his house, it still wouldn't have, because he was, wasn't home. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, what he would do is uh, as soon as the the uh, snowpack began to melt back, exposing these low foothill roads, which were tertiary roads that were largely, I mean, basically they would gravel some of the real steep inclines. And there were some steep grades on some of those. Um, but a lot of the roads were just uh, graded dirt roads. And because of this fine soil texture in the spring and even the summer when it was absolutely dry, when it was wet, it was very clay, very slippery. Uh, when it was uh, dry, it was like flour. And so you step and you'd also leave remarkably clear footprints, even in shallow dust. Um, it would transfer remarkable detail. And, uh, and they made, so they made great tracking beds, any animal. I mean, one time I took someone up and, and there's a little stretch of this, uh, the uh, uh, was it Skyline Road, is that what it's called? Uh, it sits between the infamous Mill Creek watershed where everyone thinks that <laughs> everything's going on. But dropping off the other side of the saddle is the Wanaha Tukonan Wilderness. And it's a great spot there. The animals, you know, kind of move back and forth. There's, they're both roadless areas. Not the wilderness isn't restricted. The watershed is. But, uh, you know, I took a, a camera crew and uh, on one jaunt, we just walked, we walked maybe 50 yards. And on that stretch, I could show them deer and elk and coyote and cougar and raccoon tracks crossing that road. I mean, it's just, unfortunately, no Sasquatch track on that occasion. But that's what uh, Paul would do is he would drive his pickup truck, you know, with his window down, looking at the shoulder of the road. And he'd find tracks that way. Uh, if, if other people weren't bringing them to his attention, because once he made a couple of TV appearances, I mean, he became a lightning rod in that region. And they used to, he and Wes and Bill and some of those people would kind of get together at the eatery at the, at the mall every uh, Tuesday morning, was it? And have, uh, have, you know, coffee and donuts or whatever, muffins. And people would come and share their experiences or just sit to listen in to others telling their stories. It kind of became a little gathering point. And so he, you know, heard a lot of um, reports of, of footprints from other people. But in any case, so he, it wasn't that he had the Midas touch, but he became the lightning rod in that area. And um, anyway, how much time do <laughs> I get? Um, but, but it was it was amazing. We, we pull up there and, and there's this... Uh, we're right up just, you know, uh, less than a quarter mile, maybe, from the National Forest boundary. Uh, they cultivate right up some of those real steep grades. I mean, they use these, I'm not a farmer, but D9 tractors, I think is what they were calling about, to pull their, their equipment. And they'll go up these pretty steep grades and cultivate these uh, slopes. And, and this was a little farm access road, uh, and there was an irrigation ditch that came around that was brush lined and, and fallow fields and the trees are just, you know, a few hundred yards off. Um, 
And um, here were these tracks. He pulls in and stops. We get out and here are these this line of tracks. And there must have been 35, 45 tracks that we counted or, or looked at. We didn't actually, I didn't think to actually count out. At one point we did um, when we were trying to interpret what was going on because um, Paul had read, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a reasonable tracker. He certainly knew his way around the outdoors. When John Mianzinski on one occasion, a good friend of mine, uh, the wildlife consultant in Wyoming, he uh, uh, spent a, a couple of days with with Paul in the field and was quite impressed with Paul's uh, natural history skills. Mm. He was very knowledgeable about the plants, edible medicinal plants, and and so forth. So he wasn't uh, he wasn't a slouch. I mean, he knew his way. He didn't venture very far from his truck. His diabetes was really taking its toll. He ultimately lost his leg. Uh, from the knee down on uh, one side uh, due to that diabetes. But leading up to that point, he, he wasn't as mobile and he was pretty overweight uh, as well, which just exacerbated it. But uh, so that's why he would spend his time driving the roads, you know, and there were lots of roads to explore as the spring uh, melted things off. But um, he had read it absolutely wrong. We, because uh, it was kind of suspicious. It seemed that where we parked the truck, the track started, made a hairpin loop out into the field and came back and stopped where the truck was parked. And I'm thinking, hmm, you know, that seems you get in the bed of your truck, you pull on your stompers, you jump into the mud, trot out a little hairpin loop and you dive in the back of the truck, kick off your muddy stompers, pull your shoes back on and climb into cab and off you go. So I thought, if this is real, there's got to be more tracks. There's got to be more tracks down this way. Well, we looked and searched and searched. And there, we, you know, if they were there, we should have found them. We didn't. And I'm going, hmm. Well, the only other possibility is he's reading this wrong. First of all, let's let's pin out all the uh, all the the uh, uh, tracks and see what we've got. Well, it turns out that the inflection point, the hairpin turn, was not out in the field. It was right under where the truck had been parked. We took him home, by the way. We took him home, dropped him off, and we came back. And we parked up, up the road a little further so we wouldn't drive over or anything. The hairpin turn, where it, where it literally turned on its heel and started walking back the other way very briskly, looking over its shoulder with its every second step, it was looking back with its right foot angled out 45 degrees. Um, and then it took off running. Well, we, we explored further down towards uh, uh, this irrigation ditch. And sure enough, we found tracks with no sign of Paul. His footprints were, you know, to be seen just as we got there. And then, of course, we walked around. We were careful not to step on anything, but we found more tracks further down. And so the scenario seemed to be just the opposite. It had come around the, the hill up from the Mill Creek following this irrigation ditch undercover. And then it had um, st struck out across this uh, this uh, access road, uh, down the road, <clears throat> angling towards the grade that went up this particular ridge that dropped over into the watershed. And from there, it had a straight line. It could either you know hang out in the watershed or go up over and into the wilderness area and be you know long gone from any human interaction. But I think this was the first weekend that the snows had melted back enough that you could actually get up onto that ridge road. 
And so I, my suspicion is, I mean, the tracks were so fresh when I knelt down and given the, the rainy conditions, some of them were inundated with water and all. But when I knelt down, you could actually see skin ridge detail in some of these tracks. So they had to be less than eight hours old. And uh, so it, it was probably, the, we were there in the mid to late afternoon. It was in the wee hours of the, that early morning, I think, uh, or, or late that night, previous night. And I suspect as it headed for that grade that went up onto the Ridge Road, uh, this was probably the first weekend that you could get up there in a four-wheeler. And there's probably some somebody up there with doing a bonfire or whatever, uh, imbibing. And they were on their way back in the dark, and, and something spooked this thing, and it turned and started back looking over its shoulder to assess the progress of the headlights bouncing down. And I'm, I'm envisioning. And at, at one point, you could see it decided it needed to get into cover, and it took off running. And that in on that particular track that was angled out, the the weight pivoted on the distal end, and the toes slid back across the instep as the stride doubled in length. And then we had a series of half tracks just up on the front half of the foot where it was running, and one of those where it was on a slight incline in the slippery mud, it slid, and the toes dug in and gained purchase, but it was only the front half of the foot. Really remarkable. I mean, you could see wow. the profile. The toes actually kind of expanded and the profile of the outer edge of the first and fifth pressed into this deep sidewall of the imprint. And uh, really amazing. So anyway, yeah. I, I, this was my my third encounter experience. <laughs> where the wow. hair, I mean, even telling the story again, the hair on my arm stands up because that realization set in at that instant at one point it just suddenly you go, yeah. they do exist. Yeah. You know, this really, a Sasquatch really walked by here last night. And, uh, wow. It was, yeah, that was, that was awesome. the turning point that, you know, the hook was set deep and secure and driving home that. And I mean, you know, there still was that, I mean, I, it was, it was an experience, but there still was that give and take. And so, you know, uh, we had to be back. My brother definitely had to be back. In hindsight, I should have had him drop me off at the car rental place and and got in the car and stayed on for a couple more days and just called called uh, my class and canceled it on Monday because I mean, gee whiz, the thing had to be somewhere close by. I mean, I'm sure they could cover a lot of ground in in uh, eight hours, but um, there there had to be more sign. Uh, could have established that uh, a lot more se uh, securely, solidly, but uh, wow. You know, it was uh, pretty amazing. Not, That's not, interesting. Not, I mean, you, um, it, it sounds like you vetted that whole experience, you know, that oh, yeah. whole thing that happened. Like, it sounds like you vetted it quite well, actually. Which, well, sure. Which I, I, would, I would expect lot. from you. Well, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, it was one, of, and I can, so I, I can empathize with people who find themselves in a situation and, and may not think of everything they should have done. You know, uh, they forget to put a scale down next to them because to be quite honest, you know, I was sitting there snapping pictures and I did put scale down. Uh, and I was, you know, had that much uh, presence of mind, but I had a video camera in the case behind the, the bench seat of my brother's pickup truck 
that I totally forgot about. Forgot about. I could have been convenient. Convenient, Doctor Meldrum, that you forgot about your video camera. I know. I mean, I took. I probably took fifty pictures. You know, this is before digital cameras even, but fifty yeah. slides. But uh, uh, it and we made casts. We went uh, after we dropped uh, Paul off. We found uh, on sun a Sunday afternoon. We found a hardware store that was still open. And got uh, some paint buckets, and some plaster, and stirring sticks, and all that, and went back. And you know, I, I said to my brother, even if this is, even if this is a hoax, I mean, how often do you get to look at a line of tracks like this? I said, this is a great case study in the anatomy of a of a trackway. And I think you know we can we can do a lot with this. And uh, you know, but anyway, and, and but then as as it was, I didn't uh, collect data as systematically as I should have but but I got seven good casts and a lot of photographs not a lot who, of measurements who, subscribed who, that kind of yeah so basically uh, answer like the answer me this like um whatever whatever was going going on with Paul Freeman like would it be fair to say there there was something legitimate going on there yes I, I think, I mean, I, I know, I'm quite confident there was some embellishment of, of uh, some examples of footprints or handprints. Uh, got a very good example of there, there was a handprint that I'm quite confident was legit because the footprints associated with it that were cast at the same time are absolutely the real deal because of the dynamics that are evident and we have other examples of that same individual from that region that show even more variation in the foot position. And Paul was a little uh, disappointed in how this turned out because the fingertips went straight down into the mud. It's like it kind of grabbed the soil, I think maybe it was pulling itself up. And, um, and when he poured the plaster, it was a bit thick and didn't fill the fingers, these vertical fingers. So there were air bubbles caught down or one of the tips it looks like it broke off in the mud. And, and apparently, as it's told by some of the others involved, you know, he shows up at the mall at the eatery with this new cast and, and some people were kind of pointing at this, these broken fingertips that looked strange or uh, uh, not filled properly. So a couple of weeks later, he shows up with another handprint. It's, just, it's obviously a knockoff of the first one, except he's completed the, the fingertips. But better. Yeah. But, well, but, but they look funny because they're these remarkably tapered. It's as if he used his own fingertips as models, right, right. down to the nails. And um, now, it would be one thing is if he had said, you know, I wanted to see what it would look like if it was complete, if the fingertips were there. So here's my interpretation of what that would look like but he didn't he he said that it was a new cast you know so again maybe that's holding someone to a, a standard that they've not uh that they're, that they're not familiar or uh, even obliged to observe they're not a professional scientist and so why would they it's, i'm always reminded John Bindernagel told a story where he was following up on a report on an Indian reservation up there, and, and uh, 
he was out in the field and he, he on the trail where the tracks had been observed there were some kids coming back from fishing or swimming or something uh some tribal teenagers and he uh he stopped them and, and they were chatting and and he was talking about if they'd heard about the the story and they they had heard of stories and so forth and and in fact they said yeah we've we've seen footprints on this trail before and he goes uh, did you take any pictures and the, the kids all kind of looked at each other and just laughed why would we do that i mean the mentality is completely different here's john he's in science science mode you document 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 and and these are just some tracks it's like if you'd seen yeah. your dog run across the the you know the, uh, the 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 dirt road and left some footprints you know did you take foot uh, photographs of it why would i do that <laughs> You know, so so I can appreciate when when uh, you know that there's different uh, expectations and different standards. But Paul, um, he wasn't a Boy Scout. Let's put it that way. When it came to um, uh, you know the occasional gilding of the lily, perhaps to make the story a little better or to make it a little more convincing. I think you know some people. I think they're convinced they've had the definitive experience. <clears throat> in trying to convince other people that they're legit, that they're credible, mm -hmm. they, they kind of, uh, uh, you know, blur the boundary between what's ethical and not so ethical by our, by my standard, you know, I agree. And, uh, I, you know, the end justifies the means basically. Yeah. In <clears throat> I make it more incredible to be credible. Right. But yeah. That and that's a, a psychological phenomenon that it would require another, a different professional to <laughs> analyze. But and then again, they would have to kind of buy into the whole Bigfoot thing to begin with. Honestly. Right. Uh, well, the point, oh, the point we is, have, we have that guy. He's, he's called Leon. Yeah. Right. In, inside. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, point is, um, I, just, I don't think it's justified to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case. And, you know, there have been so many, so many misstatements attributed to or, or associated with Paul. You know, he, he acknowledged uh, at one time that he had experimented with faking a footprint in his backyard. Right. Well, any researcher worth their salt has done that. I've done oh, that. But, but there was a, a book report. I, I don't recall the, the guy who wrote it that was talking about how in the early days, Paul... Uh, was talking about how there were these prints, and uh, I think you know which one I'm talking about. Uh, and he had to retract his statement because the law enforcement, local law enforcement for the watershed, got involved. I don't know about him ever retracting a statement. Um, Joel Harden, are you talking about the board? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I think it's the book, The Tracker. Oh, yeah, he, he had to retract his statements in the. Oh no, no! I, I thought he retracted his. Paul retracted his. Oh, no. uh, saying that the the that the prints were not real, that he, uh, he was doing it to, uh, you know, uh, to figure out prints and, and stuff. And, and, no, uh, no, that uh, apparently you or, who, or whoever you got the information from is conflating two different uh, things. He, he, he acknowledged that he had, he had, uh, experimented to see what it would take, you know, if someone were to under undertake to hoax a, a footprint, just like, you know, John Green and I took, took some, fake feet that he had fabricated and went out to Harrison Lake and, and made, made fake tracks just to experiment. 
we did it at, in, in seclusion away from the crowds and everything and we obviously cleaned up after ourselves so there wouldn't be any any uh, spurious reports what but, do you oh, what do you Oh, go ahead. oh, I was going to ask a, a completely different thing on uh, what were your thoughts about the London trackway down in Oregon uh, from a oh, couple of years yeah. ago? Let me just say one thing about about yes. Joel Joel Harden because his book is interesting to read, but but you you have to realize and I'm, I'm just qualify what he says. He is a man tracker, and so uh, if you read carefully, the criticisms he have of the Sasquatch tracks are all points upon which they differ from human footprints and human gait. And, they, and, and where they differ, they differ in exactly the way one would predict for a Sasquatch track. The lack of differential pressure under the heel and ball, um, the, the, the more even gait, because it, it's not walking with an extended limb, um, uh, striding, stiff-legged striding gait, which gives you a longer step on the flat, but it tends to shorten dramatically when you go up a slope. If you're always walking with a compliant gait, your your step length is more consistent on the flat and up the slope, and 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 on and on and on. If you go through his report, every criticism, it either is is a, a contradiction to uh, human tracks or his inability to follow the trackway. I mean, how can a guy? say that um, that uh, somebody wearing stompers was able to enter a location, stomp out footprints, take off the stompers, and then exit the location without leaving any sign of their own footprints before and after wearing the stompers. That's what he asserts must have happened. So he's saying Gee, I'm a Border Patrol man tracker, but I can't pick up a human sign from the known points of termination and beginning of their trackway. Oh, wow. So either he's reading it wrong <laughs> to begin with, or he's admitting that he's not qualified to, to uh, which I don't, I'm not saying he isn't, but, but I'm saying he's a man tracker. And uh, anyway, um, as far as the, uh, yeah, the London trackway, uh, the most telling thing about that was uh, um, Cliff brought, uh, when he was here at the, at the lab on one of his visits, he brought a, a couple of DVDs where he had images of every single track that he had cast. So we sat here together at the computer, brought each of those images up, and we had a little measuring device, and we tried to, to find any demonstration of variation in toe position. And we couldn't. In all those examples, the toe tips were exactly equidistant. I mean, not not uh, between toes, but between images. They were there were positions relative to one another never changed. And uh, and there were other mm. features too. You know, when you have a stiff a stiff foot, and you try to toe off, it will create right there at the end as it pushes in. There'll be a sharp angle down to the toes, uh, which is a dead giveaway for you know a, a stiff foot. And there were multiple, multiple examples of that. Um, so he he's convinced that they're they're fake, and I'm convinced they're fake. There was a crash. I think there was a, a some kind of a challenge, you know, instead of pouring ice water over their heads, it was to see if you could 
big footprints in drawn down reservoirs because there were two, there was the LB tracks, there was the London oh, yeah. tracks, and then oh, yeah. I had an advertisement that there was a case up here at the Palisades Reservoir that I investigated. And uh, oh, we were really hopeful. Uh, it, it was a, it was a, you know, marginally conceivable uh, uh, scenario, but you know, looking at the, the tracks, the same kind of details, the tip, tiptoes, the uh, sharp edges around some of the tracks where it was clearly uh, a rigid, uh, sharp-edged foot that had hadn't even rounded out the margins and. Uh, but they were all a string uh, there within about a six month period, uh, six months to a year. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, um, I've actually been to both of those sites, the LB and, and the, the London trackway. And it's, it's a great spot for Bigfoot, but, uh, I was, well, I was always curious about the London trackway cause I was getting kind of conflicting and I didn't do a ton of research, but yeah, you're the guy to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I think Cliff Cliff had the most extensive collection of the prints, and uh, Tom Powell had quite a number. And then with the LB Trackway, uh, I mean, they they've nailed it. Uh, uh, if it wasn't Aaron Schwepson himself, it was it was some cohort, um, because they they were able to track down his IP address, and he and he he had talked about it online. And uh, he, he's never completely fessed up to uh, Cliff, but he's but as close to, to acknowledging it and confessing as you can get. At least he had knowledge. He had firsthand knowledge of it. And see, there again, here, here's an ex here's interesting thing. See, they who whoever did it uh, fabricated a pretty interesting foot. And uh, but there were some of the same hallmarks of the toe imprints for one. But the dead giveaway, and we, you know, have to watch for this. I'm sure they'll eliminate it. There was a crease. If this were a foot, there was a crease right here, down around the big toe, the ball of the foot. Well, the only reason to have a crease right there is so the foot could fold like this. If the big toe could wrap around and oppose to the lateral digits like a thumb, which it can't, and no other footprint ever has shown that feature previously. So when we saw that, I mean, when I first encountered that in the photos and in the, I mean, that was a big red flag. And then of course they dug into it and uh, exposed it for what it was, but it, uh, it was a good effort, but you know. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> if, if I may switch gears just a little bit, I want to talk about population and so how i'm going to set this up i'm going to go, go to patrick patrick vaughn and patrick give us give us kind of your boots on the ground idea of population and i, I i'm interested to see um meldrum's you know thoughts about that sure all right um i've been studying this phenomenon since 2003 and I can say that I've tracked 24 different individuals within 200 miles of me. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you do the math on that and, you know, get, you know, individual per mile. And uh, in my area, um, 
there's quite a few of them. Uh, now, when I'm tracking, I'm finding more juvenile tracks than I am uh, adults. You know, in, in one area in southwest Mississippi, I found eight tracks between seven inches and 14 inches. And, I, and 14 inches isn't a cutoff for an adult. You know, uh, the average adult female uh, track that I find is 50 and a half to 16 inches. And, and a large male being uh, 18 to, I have found them 22 inch, which was just the one oddball that one, you know, that was it. But normally, you know, 18 and a half to, you know, 19, 19 three quarter inch track. Okay. And so, and so their, their numbers are increasing. Hmm. And uh, one place I tracked 12 miles from here on the river, just like you were talking about how the mindset of why would you pay attention to these tracks? Because <laughs> my son, my son and his friend were seeing barefoot tracks out here on a river in January, February, while they're hunting barefoot. Mm -hmm. And these tracks are, you know, uh, 14 inch to 16 inch tracks. Wow. And then a smaller one that, that I, I, that was about a five inch track that was toddling. The mom would pick it up and walk a little ways, put it back down It'd take a few steps, pick it up. Hmm. And I said, who do you think would be out here in January, February on, on a riverbank barefooted? He said, we just thought it was people playing, you know? So I find there's a lot more of them than what people believe there are. What, do you, what are your ideas of population, Patrick, like in your, I don't know, uh, let's say 100 square mile area that you research? Rudimentary math, and I had, I had someone have have a question on this it's uh my rudimentary math is one per seven square miles of national forest or wma now that doesn't mean there's one every seven square miles what that means is there's a group of four of them in this radius that you know supports that math so i have i have a group about 50 minutes from me <clears throat> and in 40 miles north of that there's another group of four and then there's a group of three um, about an hour west from there. And then a group of eight, uh, an hour and 15 minutes into Arkansas. So, hmm. you know, if you start, you know, doing the regional math on that, it boils down to, you know, seven square miles. But they're all, they're not scattered. They're all huddled here. And then 40 miles away, there's a huddle of them there. What, what do you think about that, Dr. Meldrum? Well, that's extraordinary. Um, <laughs> I, I would, uh, I'd really love to see how you have uh, differentiated, and and, and uh, you know, you, you, I assume you're relying on footprint evidence to establish those those individuals and numbers to discriminate them. I'd love to see see your data sometime. Oh. I, <clears throat> huh? I've had 33 encounters with eight face-to-faces. Hmm. It's not all footprint, but footprint is most of what I catch. It's very hard to get next to them. It's not very hard to find where they are. And it's not that I'm anything special. It's just I think the areas down here are more conducive 
because I don't have thousands of square miles of forest to have to sift through and, and you know, right. finding evidence. Uh, we'll have, you know, a couple hundred thousand acres of the forest, national forest, and it's broke down into 50,000 here and 30,000 there, right. you know. So it makes the hay pile much smaller. Right, right. Well, my, my approach to population side, uh, numbers um, has been, it is an indirect one. I don't have the benefit of, uh, of that kind of experience uh, to draw upon, but uh, based on the, uh, see my, my starting point uh, assumption is that they are largely solitary. So having consistent groups of four, three or four, um, the, the vast majority of, of footprints that I'm aware of suggest solitary individuals or, as you described, uh, uh, females with offspring. And um, I suspect that males and females only uh, get together uh, as consort pairs on those rare occasions that the female is receptive. Like I was alluding to earlier, orangutans, you know, their birth interval can be up to seven years spaced, interspaced. So, so based on that model, uh, the, you know, the, the analog amongst the living great apes is the orangutan as far as a social structure where they are relatively solitary. A male, instead of controlling a, fe a, a harem of females, he defends or advertises his presence as the dominant male in a in a territory it's real estate versus versus a harem and the the territory overlaps that of several females with offspring and the offspring stay with the females for you know up till 10 or 12 years of age before uh, before even after a new baby comes along in the case of the orangutans anyway um, we have some indirect evidence based on a couple of different uh, lines of, of data that suggest one being repeat appearances of recognizable individuals in the track record, but also some uh, a gentleman who did some work on uh, sort of pattern analysis of databases of, uh, of uh, encounters reports and footprint reports who um, uh, which both point to uh, home range more on the order of about a thousand square miles for that male. And, uh, and so uh, we know there's a good correlation between um, precipitation. John Green very early on drew attention to that correlation. And it makes sense. If you've got a large omnivore, you have to have about 18 inches of annual precipitation or more in order to sustain a large omnivore. Uh, there was a paper, interestingly, and for another angle, a paper recently published by an acquaintance of mine, uh, Peter Anello, who's in uh, a GIS technician. Um, he, um, he and his colleagues were actually evaluating ecological modeling software packages. This was an editorial that was published in uh, the Journal of Biogeography. And uh, their their uh, their concern, that motivation for the editorial was that people were using these um, models, these prepackaged modeling software uh, indiscriminately, you know, and uh, they didn't really understand what was happening to their data. And so to demonstrate the potential pitfalls, they decided to, to uh, 
to make uh, to illustrate this by testing ostensibly bogus data. Namely, they took um, uh, Bigfoot data and crunched it. And what it generated was a remarkably coherent uh, distribution model mm -hmm. based on various bioclimatic yeah. factors, which it turned out uh, were remarkably, well, not I mean, not surprisingly, but notably, let's use that word, notably similar in parallel to those for black bear. And uh, again, no surprise, black bear have a large omnivore. They're going to have uh, similarities in their diet and their needs for cover and shelter and so forth. So using those two, all these different things kind of piecing together, if you look at a map, you know, they're not just re reports may come from all, all uh, 50 states, but not, uh, or not 50 states, but uh, oh, maybe have there been any reports from <laughs> Hawaii? I don't Hawaii? Think. <laughs> uh, I don't think so yet. But in any case, be the big kahuna instead of Bigfoot, huh? Uh, it uh, uh, if you look at the distribution of black bear, current distribution of black bear across the United States, um, that I think is a pretty good rule of thumb. If a population of black bear can make a living, then it's possibility, it's likely that a, a Sasquatch could as well. So if you look at that distribution, got a comment, Patrick? Yeah, yeah, Patrick. Uh, I always put my finger up so I don't step oh. on anybody talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when you start talking about habitat and uh, you know ecology, um, you know it's it's diverse from where I'm at to Canada to Cal Southern California to Florida, and studying primitive survival is part of the aspect I use to study these. And survival in Utah is much different than survival in Louisiana. You know, uh, you know you'll need a greater home range, you know, and a more arid. <laughs> area than you hear now when you start talking about bear habitat and you know that really is about what bears do you know the the ecology can support them but does it mean that they fill it up right okay so right. You, you have an intelligent bipedal uh I, and i say extremely intelligent from what i've tracked and seen them do uh that can make decisions and and i'm right there with you on a on a lot of points you know uh uh as far as does a male have you know this female here and that and another female 20 30 miles away you know that's always been a question of mine mm -hmm. but uh when the juvenile hit five years old i noticed that the, he quit spending time with mom he wasn't on mom's hip he was on dad's so he's running with dad, being trained with dad at that time. And at five years, you know, you're talking about the, uh, how, how chimpanzees breed and how often that happens being six years. Well, I mean, I, I think that kind of goes alongside of it. It was five years from the juvenile male's birth to the juvenile female's birth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of it all lines up. And you're talking about the, uh, your nest that you dug into. I've, right. I've, I've found them oh. and uh, and the criteria that you discussed when you were talking about the area that it was in goes along with the criteria I use for the home sites and going along and where I'll start my tracking at is behind a water barrier that that brook is a water barrier uh -huh. and the elevation is for observation right and the, the thermals that will come up that ridge line will also carry scent 
to the higher elevations. And they also use your rock roads against you. Yeah. They'll hear your conveyance coming. Right. And gives them a heads up. Yeah. So, and I just want to say thank you for coming on and, 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 and sharing. And it's just, it's an honor to meet you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So anyway, I, the bottom line is, and I, and I don't mean to say these are hard, fast uh, criteria, but, but just uh, painting a bit, a broad picture, recognizing that, that, I mean, just as if you try to establish a home range for black bear individuals, females versus males, I mean, it just depends on the resources available. Um, I mean, they've, they've clocked uh, 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 brown bear going hundreds of miles uh, from one spot to another with cubs in tow even sometimes. Mm. It's remarkable. And then others never move, like mm. you were saying, more than 10, 10 square miles at that. And so, um, but in any case, what, 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 I, what I try to do just to get a handle, at least get a ballpark, and to help people, in my opinion, understand what I think is the rarity. I, I tend to the other direction. I don't think that there's more than people realize. I think there's much fewer than what people generally realize. But, you know, if, if you look at the state of Idaho, you look at where there's 18 plus inches of precipitation um, and where black bear habitat is, how many, let's just say for the sake of, of uh, the straw man here, how many thousand square mile uh, plots could you fit in there roughly allowing for variation in topography and hatchiness of the habitat and so forth and and it's about 15 in the state of idaho and we've got more wilderness than any of the other lower 48 so um 15 and if we take one male and say three females and a couple offspring so there's six so well, let's make it five it's mass easier 15 times five is 75 that's too conservative let's double it there's 150 or let's go again there's 300 there's 35,000 black bear estimated in idaho mm -hmm. so you've got 300 versus 35,000 um that that kind of addresses questions like well why don't we find bodies why don't we find more nests why don't we find this or that why aren't there more encounters you know, I mean, this, I think that they're extremely rare. So you do that, repeat that process for Northern California, for Oregon, Washington, say. And, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the, say, the Western United States, from the Great Plains over and up through the Canadian Rockies, I would put it at about 2,000, maybe 3,000 tops. Uh, in all of North America, certainly less than 5,000. I mean, you get over in those eastern states, British Columbia, 110,000 black bear. I don't know what the latest estimate. I always can't keep all the southern states straight, but Mississippi, I'd wager it's maybe about 5,000 black bear. No, oh, not man. even. Not even? <laughs> no, not close. Okay, yeah. less than that. There, there's a few over there, like, uh, what is it, South Carolina, or one of them has about 5,000. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have almost none. The 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 more closer you are in the Appalachian chain, right? Really, really starts in North Georgia to, yeah, uh, you know North Carolina, Tennessee. So I don't know, Patrick, how many black bears are in your area? Not many. We've imported them. So so um, it's very, it's very they're very they're very rare. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean that, that's that's part of it. You know our habitat will support them, but bear do what bear do. 
and that's their species, you know. Uh, and I completely respect uh, Dr. Meldrum's, you know, take on it. Uh, you know, uh, there's we're, there's no experts here. We don't right. know. Yeah, we this don't is, know. This is a purely theoretical, yeah, theoretical. Um, I, I think it does kind of establish some parameters for for scale for for you know ma orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's there's not ten million of them. We know that. You know. Well, I can definitely say mm -hmm. that in my experience, I've tracked twenty four of them around this area within two hundred miles of me. Now, how that equates to a population across the board nationwide, given what I know about ecology, um, and 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 the you know. Here is very rich. We have a lot of hog, a lot of hog. We have a hog epidemic. They love killing and eating hogs here. I've tracked them. I've tracked them uh, killing hogs. I've tracked them. One was walking and was eating a chewing on a, a deer jawbone and dropped it in its track. Hmm. Okay. So I don't know how it equates. Like I said, we're you know none of us are experts, and I completely respect your take on it. Well, likewise, yeah, no, it's, uh, and you're right. When there's a concentration of resource, there can be a, a blip in that, and, and that's it. They're not evenly yeah. distributed throughout the habitat. There's going to be uh, there's going to be uh, patchiness to it. It's like I was working with a gentleman one time, and he he was of the mindset, you know, if you've got the resources, you've got the manpower, you got the plan, you get it done. And so we we were going out to do a little preliminary survey work but he he kind of turns to me and says oh jeff what do you think our odds are on this trip and i said well we'll stop and buy a lotto ticket and we can discuss it a little more i said you know we can have everything work we can have every every bell and whistle that that's reasonably available we can be prepared to the hill and yet and yet we're going to be working in one drainage if if the sasquatch has gone over the ridge and he's in the adjacent drainage Yep. There may be nothing. There may be nothing in, in this whole drainage. We'll spend our two weeks there, and we won't see any sign of anything. As, you know, as, as, uh, as the case turned out, it was the year of, of dreadful forest fires in, in central Idaho. Oh, yeah. Wow. We got chased out uh, by the forced evacuation because of the fires. But anyway, but the point Ooh. is, you know, you, it's, uh, that's why I'm really interested to follow up with you, Patrick, and see just what it is that you're, you're seeing on such a regular basis. Because, you know, I always tell people, I don't know of anyone who goes out and intentionally finds a Sasquatch and, and has an encounter. Go ahead, Patrick. I was a skeptic with a capital S. I didn't want to know anything. Sure. All right. My first encounter I was chased for a mile out of the woods oh. and, and I didn't sleep for almost two years. Huh. Okay. It bothered me. Uh -huh. Now, you know, I'm not a romantic that yeah. says, wow, I'm glad these things are here. I'm a primitive survivalist that's had to study them. So I, I could, the first thing I was doing is debunking them for my own sanity. The second thing is I had to learn how they use the land so I could use the land too and, and, and avoid them and avoid competing with them because I'm a firm believer that any that two species in the same area competing for the same resources can turn into a bad situation. Mm -hmm. um, and all that said, 
I've, I've been a reluctant researcher, but I don't know how to do anything halfway. So I might as well jump in both feet and use all the, all the, the skill sets I have tracking and, and understanding what they need as primitive survivalists to use what they need uh, to affect their own survival on the, in the landscape. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Well, I, I think we've taken up too much of your time, Dr. Meldrum. I don't, you, you seem to be interested in what's going on. I, I can keep it going. Um, my, my wife won't let me though. Yeah. I've already, I've already gotten a couple messages. All right. Well, we, we will, uh, we will wrap it up. Um, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. Man, we, we only dived into half of what I wanted to talk about. And the, these are the kind of discussions I want to have with uh, professionals like yourself and or even skeptics. You know, even with a capital S, bring them on. You know, we, you know, we can talk to these people. Um, but thank you so much for being here. It was an incredible discussion. Uh, and to bring the panel in and, and just kind of open it up and just get diverse about it, you know, break, break the mold, man. Let's, let's talk about this in a real way that other people can understand in a different way. So, um, glad to have you here. Glad to have the panel. We'll wrap it up. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's just let's go ahead and end the broadcast. We're three hours in. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, Doctor Jeffrey Meldrum, and the panel. Uh, we will uh, hopefully we'll do this again someday and uh, and continue the discussion further. So, to that, I will say that would be great. Uh, that would be great. Thank you, Doctor Meldrum. Uh, thank you. <laughs>